that the podcast generates more revenue on an annual basis than all of my books combined, uh, several fold. And I don't think that would have been possible if I had been distracted early on with trying to monetize. And I'll explain why. Welcome to the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that veer off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today I go meta and talk about podcasting itself with best-selling author and lifestyle design guru Tim Ferriss, who has created one of the most downloaded podcasts on iTunes. The Tim Ferriss Show is also one of my favorite podcasts, and as both a listener to and occasional guest on that show, it was one of the inspirations for me starting a podcast of my own, particularly one that deviates into off-topic directions. Now, this is a great episode, not just because Tim is such an interesting person to talk to, but because over the course of one long conversation in his backyard in Austin, he essentially gives a chilled-out yet comprehensive masterclass in the art and business of podcasting. You might want to listen to this twice and take notes. I know I did. I'll point out that Tim's new book will debut this week. It's his fifth in 10 years, and like his others, it's sure to be a bestseller. It's called Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World. It features secrets and insights from more than 100 eclectic experts to help you find success, happiness, meaning, and more. More information on that at tribeofmentors.com. You can also check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate for more information about that book and about all the topics we cover in this episode of the show. So let's get started, shall we? Without further ado, here's Tim. All right, I'm in Austin, Texas, talking with... Four hour work week, lifestyle design guru, and longtime friend Tim Ferriss in his backyard next to his pool in a beautiful part of Austin on a beautiful day in Austin. And I talked to Tim on the phone about a month ago or three or four weeks ago. Yeah, about a month ago. And I was telling him about my idea to have a podcast. Uh, and we ended up having a nearly hour conversation that was so useful to me that I'm going to try to replicate it and go a little bit deeper in this particular conversation. So this is the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. Uh, and we can drift and deviate a little bit, but since this is episode one, uh, I want to get a little Tim lesson on podcasting. Yeah, let's go meta. Okay, so we're going to go meta. This is, this is my first podcast, and, and eventually I'll talk to people about very weird topics. And interestingly, Tim doesn't usually talk about podcasting, unless I'm mistaken. He just does it. So Yeah. And it started off very much as a side gig, never intended to become anything. Okay. There, there, was, there was at best no plan, and maybe a plan for it not to be something. That makes me feel better already, because yeah. I have a plan, but I'm already a little bit jittery about how it will be implemented. Mm -hmm. Not worried about overflying airplanes. That's, that's part of the, uh, that's part of the uh, what is it, the ambient sound. Uh, at poolside here. Well, the joke I was always told uh, when I was fledgling, in my fledgling attempts at television was, uh, why does why does thunder come after lightning? Because even God waits for sound. Okay. <laughs> because we had to do so many retakes. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you become a little, uh, as you do more recording, you become more and more sensitive. <laughs> right, well this is sloppy season one, so. Um, oh no, 
that's the best way to start. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to cover a lot of topics. And, and in a way, the take home uh, for who, the people who are listening to this will sort of be the take home for me, which is just sort of get to get a sense, uh, just sort of at, at a very basic level, uh, about what it's like to, to podcast for people who sort of have a vision for how they want to um, join the podcast conversation. And as I explained to you before, that sort of what I'm doing, I, I feel like I've listened to so many podcasts in my life that somehow my spiritual energy is going to be off if I don't join the conversation somehow. <laughs> and and I, I say, I'm vaguely facetious, I'm not a guy who says spiritual energy that much, but I'm just saying somehow psychically I feel like I want to join the conversation. Mm-hmm. And some of my favorite podcasts are conversations that sort of drift up off the prescribed topic into something that obviously the interviewee is excited about, right? Mm-hmm. And an interesting thing, I've told you this before, but when we were talking on the phone before, uh, you you slide so smoothly into teacher mode. And I think that what excites you is sharing lessons learned that I think part of the fun of this particular interview will be just sort of revisiting the the lessons you've learned since you started doing this. So I like the idea that you didn't have a plan Mm -hmm. uh, because I sort of have a plan, but I'm already feeling jittery about it. Um, but we'll, we can cover equipment. We can we can talk about the format itself, interview technique, um, big picture things like branding and distribution and stuff like that. But just anecdotally, tell me why after you had let's see, you started the podcast after your third book, right? After the Four Hour Chef. After right. the Four Hour Chef. Um, and so, just tell us real quickly about your decision to get into podcasting, and when you realized you really had something that would be central to what you do. Yeah, there were a few experiences that coalesced, I suppose. The first was the extended and very brutal experience of putting together The 4-Hour Chef and publishing it. That was the first major acquisition by Amazon Publishing, which unlike what people what people might associate with Amazon, which is self-publishing in some respects, create space and so on. Amazon had formed its own publishing division to acquire talent, pay advances, and publish books. I and was, you were number one, right? Was, you were the first guy. I was the first, I was the first acquisition. So they uh, announced the existence of Amazon Publishing in the New York Times with The 4-Hour Chef, which led to uh, system-wide boycotting. So not just Barnes & Noble, but Retailers I didn't anticipate would boycott, uh, and I, if my memory serves me right, like Target, Walmart, and so on, uh, which actually move can move a lot of books. So the in the process of doing PR and watching the numbers in the launch itself, I knew that the book would not sell. It might sell a third of its expected volume because it was so handicapped with distribution, and I also was getting really, really fatigued by the short form, say, morning shows and so on, two, three minutes. You might get a maximum of 40 seconds of talking, so you have your memorized three bullet points and hope that you don't get <laughs> lead the host to digress somewhere so that you can at least mention the name of your book after they mispronounce your name or whatever. And uh, Really an old, an old model of doing things. Yeah, an old model, nonetheless, sometimes still powerful, and uh, I, I was not able to be myself in those formats. Uh, and, you, and you couldn't get into any nuance, uh, any of the deeper uh, subtleties of, say, learning, which The 4-Hour Chef was about. So at the same time, I had a number of 
experiences on, say, the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, WTF with Mark Maron, uh, Nerdist, where we would talk for an hour and a half to four hours, and I could actually be myself. I could curse. We could get into all sorts of details that would never, ever surface in conventional media. And it was very hard. They had no desire to take things out of context, so they were very friendly interviews. They were genuinely interested. And... I had a blast. I had so much fun doing those. And I was shocked by the impact that those shows had. It was a combination of things. I knew very little about podcasting. And it was very reminiscent to me of my uh, my obsession with, at the time, what was a nascent, say, media form, but blogging for the four-hour work week. So I latched onto blogging and learned everything I could about it before the launch of the 4-Hour Workweek, including uh, starting my own blog before the book was published a few months prior on WordPress. And uh, after everything had wrapped up more or less with the 4-Hour Chef, I was completely exhausted, completely burned out, and decided I would potentially never do another book. <laughs> and wanted to, to use a different part of my brain and do something very lightweight. No bosses, no copyright assignment to someone else or uh, licensing of any type that would constrain my ability to work with my material. And uh, I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to choose my projects, and this has been informed by a number of other people, but if I'm going to choose my projects based on the skills and relationships that I develop, uh, not and trying to be not attached to a specific outcome, but to measure the success of a project based on the, re the relationships and skills I develop, you can't lose over time because uh, those skills and relationships can transcend any given project. And if you snowball that over time, inevitably you will succeed with some type of outcome. And podcasting struck me as the perfect experiment because uh, you didn't need a lot of gear. In the format that I was excited about, there was very minimal editing. It's just two people, like we're doing right now, <laughs> sitting down and having a conversation. Uh, and I could develop, I could hone my ability to ask questions and navigate conversations. That was, that was very exciting to me because I had always done interviews as part of research and uh, pulling expertise out of various world-class performers in, say, the 4-Hour Body and 4-Hour Chef and so on. But I'd never focused on questions for the sake of the questions and to really develop that as a, as a standalone skill. And it would also teach me a lot about a growing media form and distribution platform that really didn't have, and I would argue still mostly doesn't have, any rules. You can kind of do whatever you want. There are people with five-minute podcasts. There are people with four-hour podcasts. There are people who basically take public radio and just transplant it into the podcasting world, like NPR, and do a great job with highly produced shows, you have serial and so on. Uh, you can do whatever you want. There's nothing preventing you from publishing the weirdest, shittiest, stupidest, most esoteric, all of those things, or one of those things, or any combination thereof, you have complete freedom. And that was really exciting to me, to have the ability with a very, 
either solo practice, which I did for a long time. So I did everything myself. Did the recording, did the editing, did all of it. Uh, and there were a few tiny exceptions, like putting together, say, the intro music with some of the various uh, dialogue that comes up. But I, I want to get back to you about that, uh, the intro music, because yours yeah. is very distinctive. And I've listened to it so many times <laughs> that uh, it occurred to me, well, why did Tim choose that? But I want to get back to that, because I want to continue to hear like, yeah. how you eased. Like, did you know what you were getting into? Did you do enough research to know what you were getting into? Uh, I had no idea, which was part of the excitement for me, quite frankly. Uh, I think I've 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 achieved a lot thanks to planning, but I've also constrained or limited myself a lot with uh, meticulous planning that doesn't give me the uh, it's self-imposed, but perhaps prevents me from improvising later. So I went into it and with the explicit goal of experimenting with different formats. It would be one show, but the first episode and the fifth episodes might be completely different. And I think what was very important, for me at least, was committing to doing six episodes. That was really important. And in the very beginning also, these go hand in hand, setting the expectations for the listeners very, very low. So from the outset, I said, hey guys, I'm going to try this thing. I think it'll be fun. I'm going to have wine with my friends in the beginning for softball practice. And uh, if you guys like it, I'll keep doing it. If I like it, I'll keep doing it. And if not on either side, then we'll stop doing it. <laughs> and I'm going to do six episodes and we'll see how it goes. Because I, I, I don't know why exactly I chose six, but six seemed like a number that would allow me to improve my ability to ask questions. So it wouldn't be a total loss even if I cut bait and shut down the, the show. <laughs> was Kevin Rose your first? Kevin Rose is my first. And had, hadn't you done sort of video sessions with him? I had done something called The Random Show, which we still do very, very infrequently. Even Uh, more random now. Yeah, even more random. Uh, We did something called The Random Show where it was more of a conversation as opposed to an interview. And I felt very comfortable with Kevin. And it was the right combination of someone who's deeply adept in several fields, but also a close enough friend where we can have a little bit of grab-assing and drink some wine. Uh, turned the some wine turned into excessive wine. So episode one got very sloppy, uh, very very sloppy of the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah we, I mean, I was hammered by the end of it. <laughs> I was nervous, which was okay. amusing considering it's a close friend and it was at my kitchen table. But I was nervous, and I drank way 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 too much. Uh, so I remember reviewing it later, and uh, there were these ticks that I had, which I'd never noticed before. And one of them was uh, not an um or an ah, but a phrase that I kept saying to him because I, I hadn't defined how long the podcast would be. So we just hit record and started, and it kept going, kept going, kept going. So in the beginning, I said, well, Kevin, you know, I want to be cognizant of your time. And I kept repeating this phrase, Kevin, I want to be, cogn- I want to be cognizant of your time. You said that when you interviewed me, and I was like number 20. Or yeah, yeah. So this is, this is, and I do, we can talk about time management. Because definitely, yeah. that is actually important uh, because people can get super antsy if they don't know when you're going to end. Uh, but with Kevin, I said that, and then I, I fast-forwarded. I just jumped along in the timeline in QuickTime or whatever it was. It's like an hour later, and I happened to find the exact same phrase, and it, but it sounded like, well, Kevin, I really want to be <laughs> cognizant of your time. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm <laughs> shit-faced. Uh, so yeah, that was episode one. Interesting. Yeah. So what were you doing? What did you do in episode one through six that you would never do again? 
Uh, or that you've learned not to do again. Yeah, okay, yeah. What I've, what I've learned not to do, uh, <laughs> there's certain veins of questions that I tend not to ask anymore. And this is a very personal style uh, comment in the sense that uh, there are certain interviews, for instance, inside the actor studio. I did study a lot of interviewers in the process of going into podcasting. And then certainly I continued to do so, uh, but I did not limit myself to podcasts. There's no reason. That's just a distribution platform. So I looked very closely inside the actor studio, I looked very closely at, say, Larry King, Charlie Willis, Terry Gross. All of these became uh, classes for me, basically. And uh, Inside the Actor's Studio has a certain set of questions. It rarely deviates towards the end that are their rapid-fire questions. What's your favorite curse word? And so on. What's your favorite curse word and why? And whatnot. And I asked Kevin at, at uh, maybe 90 minutes into our interview, I went to my list of prepared questions and I said, uh, if you could be any breakfast cereal, what would you be and why? And Kevin responded with, as he should, like he wanted to bust my balls. And he goes, oh, it's going to be one of those interviews. And I was like, Jesus, man, stop chafing my nuts. Like, give me a break. I'm nervous already. But it's uh, that, that breed of question I have found is not in service of my audience based on the promise that I'm making, which is I'm going to tease out the tactics, habits, routines of world-class performers to give you material and ideas that you can apply. Uh, it's, too, it's, a, it's a bit too self-indulgent, and you do lose interviewees, in my experience, if you lead with those questions, certainly. With the breakfast cereal, what kind of tree would you be type yeah, stuff? Yeah, the, the very abstract questions that would almost never come up in any natural conversation. Well, here's, here's a, a question for you. What about very direct questions that are nonetheless maybe hard to quantify? Like, I've used this already, and this will be episode one, but actually you're like interview number six, and yeah. so I'm going to be salting in previews of the season to come. <laughs> Good man. Um, and, and so I think it was, I was talking to novelist uh, Cynthia Sweeney, who has an interesting story because she became successful at like age 55. She sold her novel for seven figures and yeah. has been wow. called the world's oldest living debut novelist. Yeah. Facetiously, but she's an interesting person. And so I sort of decided to end by saying, well, what have you learned? And uh, I could tell that she hadn't really considered what the lessons learned in like list style before. Yeah. Yeah. So have you found that questions that are direct but maybe not something ha people have quantified or difficulty? Have you had uh, the same problem? Uh, yes, I have realized a few things. For instance, uh, I want to make the, and I'm always keeping in mind what my listeners can use, which makes my job easy. So I have, I have a very clear mission for my podcast. And rather than try to compete with other formats, uh, there are a few resources that people could take a look at. Uh, the Blue Ocean Strategy, uh, 1,000 True Fans, which is an essay. So the Blue Ocean Strategy is a book. Uh, 1,000 True Fans is an essay by Kevin Kelly. But the general point being, uh, I wanted to create a new category. I didn't want to compete 
in a pre-existing category. So the actionable description of my podcast is a is a primary differentiator. And that so that, explain. What I mean by that is, if I ask someone, "What have you learned?" Uh, there are a few issues with that. And let me back into this though, because I, I, will, I think the point will be better made in the following way. If if my charter is to find actionable information, in other words, I wake up early. If their answer to what do you do in the morning is I wake up early, I have breakfast, I have coffee, and then I meditate, is that actionable? Is there sufficient detail in that answer for someone to replicate their recipe? No, there isn't. Not, what not at that level of detail. No, what time do you wake up? What breakfast? What type of milk? If they say milk. Uh, what type of coffee? How do you prepare your coffee? Why did you choose that coffee? I really dig into the specifics so that if it were a step-by-step recipe, someone could replicate the outcome or at least take a stab at it. And therefore, <clears throat> I, can, I can approach that a few different ways. The first is to do what most people do, fairly enough, which is how do you start your how do you start your morning? And then ask a lot of follow-up questions. The it feels like there's the the what question is what coffee, and then naturally the why question follows. Why this coffee? That, that's I mean, one, there a, yeah, that's that's one approach. So another approach would be, can you please describe the first ninety minutes of your day being as specific as possible? For instance, if you wake up early, what time do you wake up? If you drink coffee, what kind of coffee do you drink? Then I save myself five minutes of follow-up questions on each point, which is very interruptive, and it, they might lose track of what they did first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Yeah. Uh, similarly, I'm keeping in mind <clears throat> with the questions that I ask, uh, if I try to take the responsibility entirely for the interview, in other words, if it's a bad interview, it is my fault. I take full blame. In the same way that I, I blame teachers for bad student outcomes. I don't blame students typically. I think the problem is very often on the on the teacher side. And uh, for that reason, I might I would look at a question like, what are your favorite books? Sounds like, or what are your two or three favorite books? It seems like a very good question. What I learned over time because I asked this question is it's not. Why is it not a good question? Uh, most of the people I'm interviewing have inter- have read hundreds or thousands of books. And they will, if surprised by that question, which they would be, they will choose, there will be a primacy or recency effect. They'll choose something that first pops to mind. But if they had 30 minutes to think about it, they'd probably give entirely different answers. That's problem number one. The search query is too wide, if that makes sense. The second issue is that, and this is particularly true as people uh, as the interview subjects themselves are better and better known, is they, as they give answers, they've been burned by media before by having things taken out of context or being quoted. They would worry that their favorite book, in quotation marks, would then be sort of etched in stone in Wikipedia or somewhere else with an answer, so they'll defer. They'll say, ah, it's so hard, there's so many good books. And it ends up being a wrestling match. So. Asking instead, what books have you gifted the most to other people, gets a safe answer and also a more widely applicable answer. Um, it's concrete too. It's super concrete. So I tend to ask very, very 
specific questions when possible. That is not always true with follow-up questions. So there are a few cheat follow-up questions. And by cheat, I mean uh, they very reliably get good uh, additional information. One is, what did you learn from that? And the other one is, how did you feel when that happened, when you did that? Right? So what did you learn and how did that feel are two follow-up questions that you can tag onto almost anything. Uh, or can you give me an example? That's another one that I use a lot more than most interviewers. Uh, and I don't let them wriggle out of it generally. Uh, yeah, those would be a few, a few thoughts that I have. And are these... Did these develop out of your own experiences, or these sort of? Do you see Terry Gross and, and Larry King? Uh, a lot of this was just from my own experience okay. in noticing when people seemed caught on their heels, or didn't have enough time, or made up an answer to fill the space. But I could tell that if they had five minutes, they probably would have given a different answer. Uh, also, what I did at one point is I, I hired one of the, if not the, head researcher for Inside the Actor Studio to look through transcripts of my podcast to try to identify where I missed opportunities or sequence things incorrectly. I hired someone to actually review transcripts of recordings too. And I asked, I've, I've also asked other uh, master interviewers like Cal Fussman, who I've had on the podcast and just an incredible storyteller, but a brilliant interviewer. He's interviewed everybody. I mean, Al Pacino, Mike, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, everybody. Because he wrote the What I Learned column, or was one of the principal writers of the What I Learned column in Esquire for 20 years. And uh, I also asked him if he'd be willing to look at transcripts to identify where I should have jumped in, where I should have not jumped in, sequencing, what I should have explored that I didn't explore. And uh, that was also very, very helpful and has informed some of the things that I do. For instance, can you what, give me an example? Yes. I'm trying to use your lessons. Yes, here. I can give you an example. Uh, Cal gave me a guideline that I think is very useful, which is let the silence do the work. In other words, my tendency was because interviews are different from normal conversations. If you want to really extract maximum value or entertainment from someone, it doesn't have to be an interrogation, but the dynamics are slightly different than regular conversation over dinner. And this is one of the primary distinctions. If you ask someone a question in an interview and they are searching for an answer and it goes five seconds, that's an eternity in an interview. The impulse is going to be to jump in and help them in some way. Let me rephrase the question. Let me do this. And, uh, well, it's a conversational thing, too. I think when yeah. you're hanging with a friend, silence means don't go there, maybe. Yeah. Um, whereas in an interview, I, I've heard this technique before, just in the context of journalism, you know, yeah. that uh, you, get your, you get your prepared answer, your pad answer, your first level answer, and then the silence sort of draws out the real answer. It's a lot easier via phone, also, uh, to experiment with making the silence do the work. If you phone. Uh, via phone. Oh, via phone. Okay. It's a lot easier. And uh, I would actually recommend for most people that they hone their technique in the beginning by doing uh, Skype or telephone or uh, IP telephony conversations instead of in person. 
And uh, I know that there is a traditional bias towards in-person, that there's a, a certain magic or je ne sais quoi that exists only in person that you can't capture via, say, Skype. That's not my experience. And uh, there are a handful of exceptions, but not many. And the benefits of, say, recording a conversation via Skype, and I'll just lay out a few tools. So I use something called Ecamm Call Recorder. There are different options. Uh, Zencaster is another that is very popular. I don't personally currently use Zencaster, but it is a very good tool. I've been on the, the interviewee side for that a number of times. And uh, does that record into a digital recorder? It records, uh, so they, they function differently. The Ecamm Call Recorder records onto your laptop. Uh, and you can export it as split tracks so that somebody can adjust levels, say, on either side. And I use, for those people interested, an ATR2100 uh, USB mic, which is an Audio-Technica mic that is $80 perhaps on Amazon Prime. I have probably four or five of them. I just leave one in different locations. I always have one in my backpack. And and this is use it for Skype interviews. I use it for Skype interviews because I've not yet done uh, any Skype interviews. I've done them all in person so far. Yeah. And I'm already I, to my audience. I already apologize because Tim's giving me this great advice, and it's going to seem like I've used none of it. But that's because <laughs> I've done five or six interviews already <laughs> without getting Tim's advice, which means I can I can hint at them now. But I've already I've already made all these mistakes, right? Yeah. Well, I would also say though you have even though you don't have experience podcasting per se which is an odd verb, like podcasting. I mean, it's really doing something and distributing it via podcast. So you've done, you have a lot of experience interviewing. Uh, so you, you, you do have that unfair advantage if you choose an interview format podcast. What I would say is when you record via phone, uh, there are actually, in my experience, this is going to sound odd, but fewer technical bits and pieces that can go wrong and assuming you give them some guidelines like pause Dropbox and close Slack and turn things off that are going to consume excess bandwidth. Uh, the, the biggest advantage perhaps is that you can have your notes in front of you and you can take notes without disrupting the flow of the interview. So I would very routinely, and I still do this to this day, have say Evernote open with a document that I've created that has my cheat sheet and then a notebook to the side to take notes of things I want to come back to, which I'll do a lot. So if they bring up a subject that I really want to explore later, I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. Okay, we'll come back to that, please continue. And I'll take a note in my notepad. And you can do all of that without throwing someone off visually, for instance. Uh, so I'm a very, very big fan of focusing on audio only in the beginning. Uh, it, it also gives you the ability to uh, punch above your weight class in caliber of guest. What, what, you, what you say audio only, you mean interview only or? So what I mean by that is by audio only, I mean a Skype conversation is a purely audio affair. Okay, so not an in-person. You but... don't, the person you're interviewing doesn't have to worry about how they dress. They don't have to think about getting to your house or getting to a studio. They don't have to necessarily take a lot of time out of their day uh, or handle logistics of getting to hotel a and then taking flight b and for that reason i think my podcast was able to grow very very quickly uh, due to the fact that i could say hey 
making this up, but director who's on set filming right now, when you need a break, just give me three hours heads up and I will jump on Skype and we can just do this while you're getting your nails cut or something. It doesn't make a difference. I'm not going to see you. Nobody's going to see you. And I was able to really get some wins early on because of that. If I had insisted on meeting them in person, it never would have happened. And uh, so that's, that's, I think, another benefit to uh, playing with audio only, which, which allows you to note, say, if anything gets garbled or if there's anything that you need to cut, you can, you can also sketch down the, uh, the time code. But uh, I would also, just because we're getting into the weeds, before we continue in the weeds, as a, at the 30,000 foot view, I would encourage anyone who's considering podcasting to ask themselves, why do you want to do this? Because the, the format that I chose is something that I love to do. I do it anyway. And I mean, I pick the brains of experts, whether there's a recording rolling or not. And I figured, well, if I'm going to have these conversations with my friends and other people and experts, it's such a shame that it's, it has an expiration date. It's gone as soon as the conversation ends and it's trapped in my head. Why don't I just record these? Uh, I don't think people should podcast because they feel that it is the, la- the latest shiny tool in an arsenal of social media and uh, media toolkits that they need to uh, ad- adopt to remain relevant. I, they, you won't make it, in my opinion, if you, if you do that. Because there are going to be people like me who, even if I'm not getting paid, would still put in easily, if I'm excited about something, I'll put in 100 hours a week. It doesn't bother me, right? And... I would do it for free. So it's, you're not going to, you're not going, if and it's, it's not a zero sum game, many, many podcasts can compete, but you're going to be at the higher levels, uh, contending with, uh, hundreds of people like me who love this format. And, uh, the, the, the sort of elephant graveyard of podcasting is littered with three episode podcasts. This is, this is interesting. I think this is good broad advice as far as I think these mediums are going to change. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a matter of, but being excited about something isn't. You know, if you just feel like your brand needs to embrace the latest technology, then maybe you should think more about it. I mean, I just came, you know, I'm, I'm in Austin for the Austin Film Festival and I sat in on a lot of panels and one of the advices that film producers said, you know, if there's a trend for slasher horror, then it's probably too late for you to write a slasher horror film just to be a part of the market. Because the person who dreams and eats and breathes slasher horror already has three scripts that are in circulation. And by the time you're done with your script, then the eye of Hollywood is going to move on to something else. Um, And so so that's interesting. Pick pick a format that gets you excited. And uh, this is where the developing skills and relationships is important. Uh, if you could not ever get paid for this, would this would the payment per se in skills developed and relationships be enough to keep you doing what you're considering doing? And if not, I wouldn't pull the trigger. Uh, for me, it's been a huge, huge success by any measure. And I was told, I should say, also when I started, however many years ago, by many people, it's too late podcasting ship has sailed, man. You should have started three years ago. There's still so much room. There's so much room. And I was, I remember something that 
I was told by uh, Rick Rubin, who's, who's been on the podcast, has become a friend, legendary music producer. I mean, for those who don't know him, I won't bore you, but it's like Beastie Boys, Jay-Z, Eminem. Johnny uh, Cash. Johnny Cash. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Actually, Red he's Hot, a big... Red Hot Chili Peppers. I, I love Rick Rubin, yeah. Slayer. Discovered LL Cool J along with Russell Simmons. Visionary. The, he Actually, he is responsible for turning hip-hop in, into single length. Sorry yeah. to interject with yeah, this, yeah. but hip hop used to be like 15 minute party jams. Yeah. Uh, and Rick Rubin, uh, you know, in his early Def Jam days, basically used the rock principle of the verse, chorus, verse, three minute song. Yeah. Anyway, no, don't get me started on Rick Rubin. Yeah, I love he's, the guy. he's amazing. Yeah. And uh, he, we were, I was chatting with him at one point because I had a pending deadline for something else. And he said, uh, in effect, uh, just put it out when it's great. And he said, and I interpreted that to mean like there's always, it's always a good time for great and there's never a good time for mediocre. So in other words, that's just to reassure people that if you think you've missed the ship, oh my God, like it's too late to get on Instagram. It's too late to get on uh, fill in the blank to become involved with podcasting. It's complete nonsense because most people half-ass it. They feel rushed, they put out a mediocre product, and there's never a good time for that. They will fail, or they will hate what they do. And you can avoid both of those just by making something really, really good. And it's still the case in my experience in podcasting that if you have even a bare modicum of promotional ability, if your stuff is really, really, really good, it will find its audience, or the audience will find you. It's interesting how the podcasting medium has... Uh, prevailed because you interviewed me I think in 2014 and yeah. I was thinking oh man yeah Tim caught the tail end of that you know it's too late <laughs> um, and, and again I was just sitting in uh, at the film festival here in Austin and um, podcasting has become such a multitask and traffic type thing that people are starting to send pitches or even parts of screenplays acted out so that the executive who's too busy to sit down and read a script can listen to a few scenes of the script in the car never even occurred to me. I think it has become internalized. Um, it's one of those things, and I don't want to drift too much, but this is the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast, so I'll deviate a little bit, <laughs> is that I discovered that it's become, podcasting has become my new TV. You know, yeah. that to watch TV, you have to sit and watch it. Yeah. With a podcast, I can wash dishes, I can go for a run, I can prepare yeah. lunch, I can um, drive around. Uh, and, and, and in fact, that leads into, you know, my own passion for this, one of which is just joining the conversation and, and having a pretext to talk to interesting people. And then, then sort of coming over that, that introversion of mine, like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a writer who's very solitary. You're a writer too. And I'm sure you go through solitary yeah, phases yeah, as well. Yeah. But um, you just exercising that muscle, you know, of, yeah. of approaching people. And I do want to talk to you about um, anxieties going in, you know, sure. approaching you know, approaching people who may, maybe you've respected for a long time and then suddenly thinking, oh, crap, they said yes, now what do I do? Oh, I remember, I remember all of those. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so talk about I remember that the, I remember the first one, actually. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> let's see. So that, just to, to put a, a pin in uh, what we were just talking about, and then I'll, I'll come back to Ed Catmull, who is the interview that I was extremely nervous about. Uh, we are nowhere even close to 25% into what anyone would consider an ascension of podcasting to some type of like, you know, local maxima peak of any type. I mean, we, we are so early. If you, if you look at the broader population, 
it's a relatively small percentage of people in the U.S. who listen to podcasts on a regular basis. And there's so much money being pissed away in radio. And money brings talent. Right? You look at the evolution of MMA, mixed martial arts and UFC, and how much it has accelerated in the last, say, five to ten years. You see it in all different areas. Uh, the podcasting world is still relatively tiny. And uh, the number of, say, big spending creative agencies and brands coming in are very limited. They're still on terrestrial. And that, that is just polishing brass on the Titanic. That's, that's going away. I mean, the, the money that is there is going to move in. And the reason the money is important, not because I'm saying people should try to monetize their podcasts early, which I think is a huge mistake, and we could talk about that. And something we should come back yeah, to. Yeah, we'll come back to that. So you have your, your trusty notepad. Um, then we'll, we'll come back to it. I hope it's not a distraction. Oh, it's not a distraction. Uh, the, uh, we're still super early. So if you're passionate about audio, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room left. A lot of runway left. Uh, the interview question related to nerves. Uh, I inter So the first complete stranger I interviewed with a name that I considered very widely recognizable was uh, Ed Catmull, uh, president of Pixar. And I was really nervous and I had asked for something like 90 minutes and he seemed very displeased <laughs> that someone had scheduled him for a 90 minute interview. Was it a Skype interview? It was Skype. Okay. Yep. And uh, I remember exactly where I was. I was actually standing on Long Island uh, where I grew up at a kitchen counter, which, which allowed the laptop to be at, at about chest height. <clears throat> Same place I interviewed you, actually, uh, remotely. And I had my tea and my water and everything ready to go. And I was nervous. And uh, I found the most useful way to diffuse that uh, were, I suppose, multifold. A few things. Number one is just stating the obvious. Just telling him. You know, I'll be honest, I'm a little nervous because of A, B, and C. And I do this in my podcast all the time. A, for setting low expectations on the part of the audience, which I think is the secret to happiness for everybody. <laughs> and B, it's, it, 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 I think, engenders some degree of sympathy. Uh, slash strokes the ego, which, is, which are both helpful. Uh, so that's number one. I'll, I'll say something like that right up front. I did the same thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger which was in person. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, that was... That in his was, kitchen or something. In his kitchen, yeah. yeah. And then with, with Ed, I, I viewed it as my obligation to him and also to the listeners to demonstrate a few things relatively quickly. Number one, that I'd really, really done my homework. That is how you get, in my experience, busy type A... And I say that in a type A in a loving way because I'm certainly in that same category to pay attention, is to show that you have done your homework, that you respect their time enough to have put in the background work. And, and what does that look like? What is the background work? Let's come back to that because that's okay. a longer conversation. And yeah. then uh, second is very often identifying an area of interest or a tiny footnote, say, in their Wikipedia page about uh, maybe a side obsession that is has that you have not seen covered in other interviews. 
for someone like Edward Norton, for instance, who I was uh, fortunate to uh, know beforehand, uh, nonetheless, even if you know some people quite well, they can have a Pavlovian response to the little red record button in person and become more guarded. It's very common among celebrities because they've been burned so many times. And I wanted him to feel as comfortable as possible, so we talked about surfing. He's extremely passionate about surfing. And, and you knew this because of Wikipedia? Because of Wikipedia or other types of homework. Okay. And uh, with Ed Catmull, you know, I really wanted to dig into some of his background and the fact that he had jumped from the hard sciences, or rather from art, into the hard sciences, and to really zoom in on that decision and transition because I found it interesting for reasons that I could explain that seemed reason, uh, somewhat astute, right? And he's a guy who I, I knew from background research and his own writing uh, highly valued the power of observation, the powers of observation, right? So that, and then uh, what I find very frequently is if I've done my homework, I demonstrate that with good questions. I set the parameters very well at the outset, and I'm going to come back to that because that's actually really important before I hit record, that I can make myself feel less nervous and get people to open up and uh, not feel rushed in such a way that they're looking at their their watch waiting for the interview to end. By setting parameters. Yep, that's, okay. that's what I want to cover next. So before I ever hit record, what I try to do with everyone is spend just a few minutes, and this is when I will use video if I'm recording remotely, just so there's a face associated, so I'm more of a human and less of a sort of robot interviewer at the other end who's somewhat dehumanized, uh, is I'll, I'll try to do just a little bit of video and I'll ask a number of questions, which include, uh, so I'll say from the outset, this is a friendly, there are no gotchas, you have final cut. So if there's anything that you say that you want yanked out later, just let me know and we'll cut it out. And uh, it, I encourage them, I say it's better to give, it's better to be excessively open and then cut stuff out because I can't add interesting things in later. And uh, this gets easier with time and uh, comes back to the question of guest recruitment, which we can touch on. So that's, that's number one, is you have Final Cut, which they do for Inside the Actor Studio, by the way. That's where I got the idea. And secondly, I will ask them, what would make this interview a home run for you? So three months after this publishes, if you look back at it, what type of people would you want to meet? What actions would you like my audience to take? Is it book sales? Secondarily, is there anything else? Uh, because I can put my machine behind it in such a way and position it in such a way to optimize for those outcomes. And this and is before you hit record? Before is... I hit record. Okay. And almost no interviewers ever ask that question. <laughs> right? So they're like, huh. Huh. Oh, interesting. All right. Thanks for asking. And then they lay it out. I'm like, okay, cool. So you want to do this, this, and this. Great. I'll take this link and I'll put it at the top of the show notes. Uh, to increase the click-through rate and A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, next question that I always ask, it's not unique to you, but is there anything you'd prefer not to talk about so that we don't even have to edit it later? Anything you don't want to talk about? So some people will say, you know, I'd prefer not to talk about my son or I'd prefer not to talk about my family or 
X, Y, and Z lawsuit that everybody's fascinated by. I'm over it. It's just exhausting and it's not that interesting or useful. I don't want to talk about that. Great. No problem. Won't even, won't even touch it. And uh, those are a few of the questions that I ask. And, I, and then what I'll also do is I'll lay out the format of the show. And I will say, uh, as, as a bit of context so you know the roadmap, typically what I do is I'll bounce all over the place for the first 30 minutes. It's very nonlinear, so we'll go all over the place, just like a natural conversation, with questions that are just of interest to me. Then we may, we'll do probably 30 minutes of talking, uh, asking perhaps audience questions, fans who have submitted questions, and also talk about your new project, like the reason you're doing this interview, whatever that is. Uh, and then uh, in the tail end, we'll do my rapid fire questions, uh, which I will very often send to people in advance so they don't get stumped. Some of them look, some of them don't. Uh, and then we'll wrap up and we'll do a call to action. I'll ask you what you would like everyone to do as suggested next step. And I'll record the intro later so that I can also hit your new book or your new fill in the blank. And then on top of that, I'll do A, B, and C to optimize for these outcomes you've already told me are really important for you. Sound like a plan? Cool. And then they're ready to rock and roll. And very, very few interviewers, and I've done, I've been interviewed hundreds and probably thousands of times. I could count on one hand the people who have gone through that prep process with me. Very rare. Uh, so you're immediately a standout. Uh, and uh, what I'll sometimes volunteer also is that I've, you know, you have final cut. You, you and I have both been misquoted in the media before. It sucks. This is not a gotcha show. And so I'm also letting them know that I understand and have experienced what they have in some capacity. If they're concerned about something being cherry picked and used out of context, it's like zero worries whatsoever. I, I ask them, and then there, there are things that happen before the interview ever starts, which is asking them for say preferred photographs and preferred bio. And if they have any requested talking points or subjects that they'd like to explore, uh, some people send things, some people don't, but I'm giving them the option. And so they know exactly, they have a very good feel for the terrain that they're going to encounter in the, in the interview. So those, those are a few things that I, I use to put them at ease, which puts me at ease. And it helps you. I was going to say, if they know the terrain, you know, then that yeah. helps you, you know, guide that, you know, it becomes more self-guiding, the conversation. It does. And they are also less prone to getting panicky about plugging their stuff because there's nothing worse and I early on I was guilty of doing this as well because when you have media training they instill in you the importance of saying things and it sounds so bad and someone will ask you a question and you pull a politician and you're like that's a great question which reminds me as I wrote about in my book the four-hour chef subtitle da 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 and you hear these people do that like seven or eight times no, in a five-minute interview it's yeah. terrible yeah. it's horrible and your coach to do that your um, coach to do yeah. it but it's just awful and uh, people will get panicky because they feel like you're gonna end the interview unexpectedly and they won't have a chance to sell their book or whatever it is uh, so I'm just like look got it covered I'm really good at doing this and I know why you're doing the interview. We are going to check all those boxes and I'll hit a home run for you. But we need people to trust the messenger before they're going to buy the message. So let's just make them fascinated by you. And then I will promise you, I will sell a shit ton of books.
but we're going to get there in the, like, the, the second third. <laughs> so, so it's like reassurance, you know? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, it's reassurance. It's like, look, I know I, I've seen this movie before. Not my first rodeo. Fill in whatever metaphor you prefer. And uh, that I find very helpful. Really, really helpful. And I also ask them, do you have a hard out? Which is, do you have a hard out time? Like, is there an exact time by which you absolutely need to be out? And if they do, it's like, okay. And what will happen very often is they'll say, uh, you know, like their assistant or publicist sign them up for 90 minutes with me. And they'll say, you know, I'd really like to finish in no more than 60 minutes. Uh, I can tell you, without exception, 100% of those have gone longer than 60 minutes. Sometimes they've gone two to three hours because once they realize I've done my homework and they're having fun, then they just roll with it. They start to enjoy it. They start to enjoy it. And I will also, uh, if I'm hitting time, I'll say, you know, I I, I know we're we're brushing up against uh, your out time, but are you okay with a few additional questions? And very often they'll be like, oh, zero rush I can push my meetings like we can talk as long as you want now do you edit afterwards like if you have a 90 minute um if your 90 minute conversation feels does it ever feel a little flabby and so you tighten it back to 60 minutes almost never and that is simultaneously uh strategic laziness (laughs) Uh, because I knew in the very beginning that I had to I had to engineer everything for optimal simplicity or I wouldn't keep doing it. And to that end, I watched what, say, Joe Rogan and uh, Mark did, Mark Marin, which was effectively zero editing. It's like, no, this is, this is a fly on a wall or you're sitting at a dinner table having wine with all of us and you're going to hear all of it, including like the meanderings that don't particularly go anywhere. Uh, and that hasn't been, you haven't had any pushback from the audience? Oh, I've absolutely had pushback. But here's the okay. thing, you're going to have pushback from at least 10% of your audience on any decision you make. If it's short, they're going to say it should be too long. It should be long. If it's long, they're going to say it should be short. If you use fast, you know, like, jazzy music they're gonna tell you you need rock music whatever you do you're going to get pushback from a portion of your audience Uh, so you really have to do ultimately none of that matters if you stop doing the podcast because you're doing something that you dislike so I very much optimize for my enjoyment peace of mind and ease Uh, so very very little editing but that also poses a tremendous challenge that I like which is how do you keep a two or three hour conversation. I mean, one a handful of my podcasts have gone four hours. How do you keep that interesting the entire time? That's a, that's a I like that challenge. Well, you alluded to before to um, sort of framing questions in such a way that you're not bouncing. Like um, I don't even know how you characterize it, but ba- basically making the useful part of the conversation more efficient. And I want to touch on that in a second. But first, I wanted to ask, in the interest of simplicity, did you ever consider a more produced podcast? You know, because I love This American Life and 99% Invisible and other things. And I've thought about doing some of that. But I'm curious to know. Those shows are a lot harder to create than most listeners realize. And I would suggest if you're considering doing a show like that, that you fast forward to the end of This American Life and listen to the credits. 
A lot of people. All of those people are busting their asses. It's not a lightweight job. It's very stressful. I know a number of people and companies who produce brilliantly put together podcasts and it's it's a startup every single one of them and i had no desire to do that and i also wanted to retain all control uh, so i left the door open to doing that and i have experimented with moderately produced formats uh, like my radio hour formats where i say today we're going to talk about meditation and i'll pull out bits and pieces from different interviews but i'm not going to try to out npr npr and uh, as much as I enjoy the listening experience of This American Life, for instance, I am not going to compete on that playing field because I'll get my head served to me. And it's, it's not fun for me either. I know what the process is like of capturing a lot of tape, going through selecting tape, transcribing. It's not a process that I really want to be a part of. So I'd prefer to get really good at the transferable skill of keeping something interesting for two hours because that applies so many other areas whereas the the very niche repertoire required and process required to put together a radio show does not actually transfer to many other places well it's like conversation craft versus story craft and I was thinking as yeah. you were talking it's like the difference between asking your grandfather questions about his youth versus making a documentary about your grandfather's youth, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, they're uh, story craft is very important, but it's just a different monster than interview craft, you know. And, yeah. and interview craft or conversation craft can be practiced in real time, whereas in story, story craft is a much more curated phenomenon. Yeah, um, yeah I, think, I think that uh, perhaps if you were to look at the most critical top-level decision that has allowed me to have whatever degree of success I've had in podcasting, it's keeping it simple so that I don't start to view it as a burden. Because I will outpace, I've seen hundreds of podcasts come out with people who have the potential, if we're looking at say iTunes ranking, right, and downloads and so on, they have the potential to beat me. Like if they stuck with it for a hundred episodes and put out really good content and paid attention to the quality and were really meticulous, they have the name recognition. These are really well-known people. I mean, a lot of celebrities, a lot of people who are good on radio jumping into podcasting. And they flame out after 10 episodes because they're trying to be NPR. Uh, so I, I have a high degree of confidence in the general uh, misguided impulse to complicate format. <laughs> and I just keep my primitive little operation going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that you mentioned the intro music. The intro music that I got was, Which I can hear in my head right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was from Audio Jungle. It's royalty-free music that I bought for whatever, I don't know, 50 bucks. And then threw in a little bit of dialogue here and there. It was uh, like Jason Bourne and the Terminator, Yeah, Jason right? Bourne, the Terminator, and uh, a, a couple of other bits and pieces. Which I, pro I would, in, in retrospect, not recommend people do, probably. <laughs> I'm still waiting for my, like, some cease and desist letter. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, I, would, I would discourage people from doing that. But in the beginning, I was like, you know what? It's like, I'm not hurting anybody. I wasn't monetizing in the beginning. So it wasn't using someone else's intellectual property for unfair gain. Uh, and 
which is always a very deliberate decision on my part. I didn't want to be distracted by the commercialization or uh, even marketing components of the podcast because I knew that those would be easier for me than the craft work of getting better at asking questions and focusing on the actual content. And to, to preclude that as a distraction and also to limit my liability in cases of anything, I didn't want to monetize it early on. Uh, but that music, I'm still using the same cheap-ass music that I got on day one. And I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> and, and was there a strategy behind that to be sort of memorable and punchy and sort of weird? Because I, it's, it's unusual. It's... Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's my person. It's just me being me, honestly. Okay. And everybody is fucking weird. Uh, we just, to differing, different degrees, <laughs> do a good job of covering it up and fitting ourselves into the box, whatever that box might be. And I was like, you know what? I had such a brutal experience with the four-hour chef with so many uh, <laughs> cooks in the kitchen, pun intended, it was really demoralizing, and I'm, I'm extremely proud of the book, but it killed me. And I wanted to just be my goofy, stupid self and drink too much wine with my friends and record it and laugh my ass off about how stupid I was to get to the point where I was slurring my speech and not give a fuck at all and to put it out <laughs> and to have people like, dude, really? And then I, I proceeded to get like drunk again in episode three, and I was like, okay, I really this, this shouldn't become my... The expectation of the audience is that I'm going to be like the second half. The, the second half of the interview is going to be really sloppy. That's no good. That can be a spin-off podcast. Yeah, like. I mean, but I still occasionally I'll do my drunk dial podcast. This was uh, another attempt to make things easier for myself. I was like, all right, how can I record a podcast and make it as easy as possible, but have it be fun for my audience? Okay, well, let me just get like a bottle of gin and some soda, sit down at Skype. And on social media, just put out a call where people can fill out their name and phone number in a Google form. And then I'm like, all right, from like 7 to 10, I'm just going to be sipping gin and making Skype calls in the order received. And I'll answer your questions and get, just get progressively <laughs> less sober. Uh, so it's like drunk history, but, yeah, but uh, yeah. drunk uh, life advice with yeah, Tim Ferriss. Yeah, so it, uh, it turned out great. And so the setting the expectation from the beginning this is another pitfall of the npr produced approach if you're not thoroughly committed with a team to doing it for a long period of time is that you become imprisoned by this structure and then if you want to do a drug dialing episode people are like what the fuck is this you know and it's like who let this maniac into the recording booth <laughs> to publish this whereas if from the outset i'm like yeah this is weird i'm weird and you never know what the next episode's going to be. Like the format could be completely different, but at the end of the day, you will have actionable stuff you can use. That's the one constant. But otherwise, like it could be a politician one day and a porn star the next. Like you just have no idea. And uh, that's part of the fun of it for me. Well, let's jump on that uh, guest selection, yeah. uh, guest uh, invitation. How do you approach people? How do mm -hmm. you know? I presume you started the way I'm starting, which is talking to people that you know who are doing things that are interesting. Yeah, uh, which which comes back to the ease. Play softball first. Like you don't want a major leaguer throwing fastball at your head in your first few outings. That's unnecessary hardship. Uh, so the, in the beginning it was friends, and then asking friends who I might have on. Uh, and then I began cold outreach. And the cold outreach is hard no matter what. But 
Uh, I've had a lot of practice pitching via email <laughs> in various ways for a long, long time. That predate and the podcast. That predate the podcast, for sure. And uh, the, the outreach was very often... Uh, I was fortunate to be in a position where some of the interviewees or target interviewees had read my books or at least had heard the name. So the advice that I would give are not for the, I think the format of the email is transferable, but the access that I might have in the beginning is probably not. Uh, the Twitter is, a, is an excellent way to reach otherwise out of reach uh, to tweet at potential people? interviewees, yes, because you can you can direct message with someone if they follow you back, without them giving you their contact information. This is a key key characteristic of Twitter uh, that makes it very very useful. And in fact, for my uh, new book, I just got a real copy of it yesterday. Uh, Tribe of Mentors, the I reached, so there are 130 people in that book. I would say I reached 70% of them. And these are like Ben Stiller, Patton Oswalt, uh, founders of various companies, people who would be very difficult for me to get on the podcast, who responded to questions that ended up in the book because I was able to figure out a way to get them to follow me so I could direct message them on Twitter. And figure out ways, does that mean tweeting at them? Or was there it, another... It could be tweeting at them. Uh, it could be say, uh, retweeting something of theirs so that it gets commented on by your followers in such a way that if, for instance, they're sorting by verified at mentions, and then you follow them, you retweet something and then say follow them immediately afterwards, you're going to pop up twice in their timeline if you have a verified account. Um, and they're, they're, Or you, you may have a friend who has a verified account who could like favorite if you do a quote retweet and then they favorite it, it's also going to pop up in someone else's feed. And this is the game we play. This is deep matrix Twitter yeah. strategy. Yeah, yeah. This, is, yeah. this is yeah not stuff I've talked about before. So that would be one approach. And then in the email, it's very important that you put your foot, your best foot forward. So whatever tools you have to bring to bear on promotion, if your podcast is just getting started, it, uh, are important. Uh, I had the blog. I had, at the time, no real email list to speak of. I had social media. But for instance, you could uh, figure out a way to partner or contribute, partner with or contribute to Huffington, Huffington Post or Forbes or some outlet whose credibility you can borrow. So you say, not only will it, you appear on the podcast uh, along with these following people you might respect, uh, but uh, the transcript will also be turned into print pieces on this site, this site, and this site. And uh, there, there are many different ways to go about uh, to, to go about engineering reach in that fashion. Uh, but the, the the final cut piece is a big it's a big piece. The giving guests final cut is a huge unfair advantage, and almost nobody does it because they're like, oh my god. I can't have a bunch of people meddling in my podcast. Now, with a book, different story. Like, you do not want... <laughs> if you give people final cut slash final approval edit on books, everybody 
or a lot of people fashion themselves writers and you will have a huge mess on your hands with people sending back redlined documents. In podcasts, uh, I have had maybe five people out of more than 300 ask to hear the interview afterwards. To hear it. Like, j just in case there's something they want to cut out. Gotcha. Nobody, like, nobody exercises the final cut right that they have, that I've given them. Almost nobody does it. Because by the end of the interview, they're like, all right, this guy's totally, this guy's totally cool. It wasn't any type of, there was no oblique strategy, uh, no ulterior motive. It's exactly what he laid out and told me it would be. And, and probably full context too. You yeah. know, you're not you're not cherry picking. No, I'm not cherry picking at all. Which is, and they that's also one of the benefits. I didn't mention this earlier, of the what you see is what you get, minimal recording, uh, minimal editing policy is that you can sell it as a benefit to the people who are being interviewed. You're like I'm not going to cherry pick. It's a conversation. The people are going to hear what we record, start to finish, unless there's something you want to pull out. And they're like, oh, weird. Okay. And uh, for that reason, oddly enough, what's happened in a number of cases with J.B. Fox and with a, number, a bunch of different people is the, the answer they give me, the topic that they mention in the beginning is something they absolutely don't want to talk about or that their team mentions they don't want to talk about. They voluntarily bring up, say, an hour and a half in because they're like, okay, wow, this guy's actually legit, means what he says, is asking insightful questions. This is the perfect format and forum through which for me to tell the full story and give the full context for this thing that is controversial. I, I think um, traditionally interviews have maybe been a little bit extractive, you know? Yeah. And if, if you can angle them towards a, a conversation, angle them towards, um, you know, just maybe less of a goal-oriented, and I know that you aim towards outcomes, yeah. But again, I think if you give if you give context and just sort of a good faith conversation, yeah. it feels less extracted, perhaps. Another good question that isn't a question at all, uh, and I, th I forget who I borrowed this from, but I certainly didn't come up with this. I know who I borrowed it from, uh, Alex Bloomberg, co-founder of Gimlet Media, who has a very good toolkit for interviewing. But tell me the story, tell me a story about dot, dot, dot. So rather than, for instance... Uh, can you describe your childhood? Super broad, right? I mean, the search function on that is really CPU intensive for someone. Uh, and and you're, you're also dealing with, uh, if it's early on, which it typically is, most people, are if they're going to ask about childhood, they do it in the very beginning of an interview before they've established enough trust and rapport and the person may be concerned that their parents are listening to the interview or uh, who knows, that they'll give you very often pretty pat answers, uninteresting, undetailed answers. But if you say, tell me, tell me, tell us a story about like something your parents did with you as a kid that sort of typifies what your experience was like from you know, five to 10 or whatever. I mean, that's not as polished as it would be if I thought more about it, but the tell me a story about Tell me the story about one of your most memorable rejections in the beginning days. Right. Well, I was even thinking just now, you know, um, if you said, t tell me about your childhood, I mean, that's such a, it, it, you, you almost would have to ask with geography, you know, I'd, I'd say, well, I grew up in the middle of the country and I was, it was pretty normal. Whereas if you say, 
tell a story, I'd say, oh yeah, once I had a beer drinking contest with my friend, my cousin Clint when we were five because beer sort of seemed like pop, but it didn't taste <laughs> as good. And then pretty soon you're five and you've had a beer. And then, yeah. you know, then suddenly you have a story. You don't have a normal childhood in Kansas. You have, well, actually, Rolf did this really weird thing when he was five, and it's more interesting. And it's not only more interesting and engaging for the listeners, it, it moves the interviewee into conversational mode and out of defensive interview mode. I was going to ask you about that, um, how to massage the conversation towards anecdotes, which in a way are more interesting than sort of the information exchange. Yeah. Do you have any strategies for... Well, there's the tell me a story, tell us a story, could you tell us a story about X? Uh, there's also, can you give an example? The example is a really easy follow-up to almost any question that you could use to elicit an anecdote or a story. Plus silence, right? Plus silence. Yeah, silence. If if you get an answer, and it doesn't always work, but if you get an answer, it's like, well, there's so many different this, it really depends, but nah, and they're doing the hemming and hawing. Silence works really well there. Because <laughs> they'll usually capitulate if you're just like very earnestly just waiting with bated breath, kind of maintaining eye contact. And they'll usually... Okay, well, you know, and then they'll have something to add. Uh, it, it's interesting how similar this is to, like, I've taught writing at a number of places, and just getting your student writer to, um, you can hear that on the on the mic, by the way. Tim has a goatee for some oh. reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's, he, and he's uh, thoughtfully stroking his goatee. <laughs> so if you hear this little rustling noise, it's Tim That's, Ferris's brand new goatee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I had a full homeless chic beard going, but I don't, I don't know how to, trim or manscape a beard so it really was the vagrant look so I, I cut it off last night but I like playing with the beard so I kept the beard and the, the mustache right anyway. so every 20 minutes it occasionally gets into the mic but yep so I'll, I'll try to avoid scraping the mic right well again this is episode one so yeah. I'm, uh, my audience is forgiving yeah. me all sorts of things but the point I was making is uh, hardware note uh, okay a handheld mic won't gotcha won't, won't brush the face well, actually, let's, I want to jump, uh, I want to talk briefly about equipment and distribution platforms. Yep. Um, I may have little to add on distribution, but I'll have thoughts on hardware for sure. Okay. Um, but anyway, just to underscore your point on abstract versus um, concrete, and that's a writing lesson where oftentimes, you know, uh, our first level of writing is way up high on the ladder of abstraction, and I'm constantly reminding students to, to bring it down. You, know, you yeah. can write a story about love and not mention the word love. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes maybe it's, it's even better. So mm -hmm. again, I think give me an example is a way of pushing down from abstract to concrete levels mm -hmm. of language. So, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. So getting concrete, let's talk yeah. about uh, recording equipment. Now, I'm recording on an H1, mm -hmm. um, which you observed when we sat down is compact. Very uh, small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a reporter's... Uh, uh, digital recorder, mm -hmm. uh, and it can be used with any number of microphones and headphones. Uh, and actually, I'm wearing headphones right now, which is why I could hear your, your occasional goatee. Scratch. Scratch, scratch. Uh, <laughs> and then I have these lav mics, uh, and I know that you and some other people that I've um, been interviewed by, like Ari Shafir, uh, the comedian, have used handheld mics. So tell mm -hmm. us about your setup. My, my general in-person setup is uh, a Zoom H6, so same manufacturer, different model. And I like the H6 for a number of reasons. 
primary of which being that I can have up to six mics attached. So I, I very, I wouldn't say very frequently, but with fair frequency interview multiple people at the same time. And that was sometimes cumbersome to do with the H4, which I had previously. So the recording device that I use is the Zoom, Z-O-O-M H6, which, which I like quite a lot. And then I use XLR cables, which are very standard cables, that connect to Shure hand mics. And that can be an SM, I think it's an SM78, which are cheaper, or I have some uh, slightly more expensive, um, specifically designed for vocal use microphones, also from Shure. For singing or? Uh, or yeah, just singing or podcasting, recording. They're, mm -hmm. they're very much optimized for vocals. And uh, they're, they're, they're fantastic. So I, I use those quite a bit as well. In a pinch, the ATR2100 that I mentioned earlier, which is a USB mic, has an XLR jack. So that can also uh, do double duty, but it's not very good. Uh, and that's it. <laughs> I will use earbuds of some type for a sound check, and then I take the headset off because it's... Uh, I don't, I want people to forget they're being interviewed to the extent possible. And, uh, and so this is for in-person This It's for in-person. Right. That's for in-person. And then... And then use the Ecom call? The Ecam... Ecam... E-C-A-M-M -M call recorder with Skype to record uh, via Skype. And, and do you use just your laptop mic? I use the ATR2100. Okay. And uh, important note on that, I plug in, I don't know exactly why this helps or works, but I plug in earbuds uh, to avoid echo and other audio issues. The audio quality is much better when you listen through earphones while recording on the ATR2100, in my case. And I've, I've tested many different mics. The best bang for the buck by far that I've found for USB mics is the ATR2100. I'm sure there are other good ones out there, but I tried the Yeti. I tried something called, I think it's the Blue Ball. <laughs> Actually, it's probably not the Blue Ball. <laughs> Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> Those interviews. Blue, just, blues, yeah. Like, you just can't get them to open up and give you anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's the system that works for me. That's what I've done effectively since day one. It's changed very, very little. And these are USB mics, so it's into the USB jack and That's right. not the microphone. Or actually, is there even an input? I'm showing my technical uh, <laughs> amateurism. Uh, right yeah, now. I don't think there is uh, what you would consider an audio input unless you could do something via HDMI. It's, specifically, you'd use uh, the USB, and then you're, you're plugging in your earphones uh, so that you can hear the person speaking but also avoid any type of echo issues and that's it it's a really simple setup i mean my my setup in total for skype that i still use i would say is sub 100 dollars. i'm paying some type of fee for the software which is nominal and then i'm using skype and that's it uh, with the with the atr 2100 and i used to use a service which i found helpful uh, i now have editors who handle the editing of my podcast but uh, I did, out of the first 50 episodes, I probably edited 30 of them myself because I wanted to get to know, I wanted to be confident I had a basic understanding of how to do it. And I used GarageBand at the time. I wouldn't recommend GarageBand. There are some limitations 
that can become very problematic where your audio can get trapped in GarageBand, you can't export it, which is <laughs> not what you want. Uh, I know people who have very successful podcasts who still use Audacity, for instance, which is free software. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the, the point I was going to make is that I would very often export WAV files higher quality than MP3 as separate tracks from Ecamm Call Recorder and then run those tracks through uh, something. Man, these plans are really going after it. Uh, oh, what was the... You know what? We can, we can clip it in in the show notes afterwards. There is a online service that allows you to upload audio and do and it applies noise reduction and leveling in a very interesting way and you just wait and it does some of the the most fundamental forms of cleanup on audio uh, I think it's Alphonic A-U-P-H-O-N-I-C actually this, so it's sort of auto leveling yeah exactly I also use there's a mic called the Yellowtech IXM that I use sometimes which fits in a backpack and it's all self-enclosed, so everything I need to record is inside the mic, including the, uh, the SD card. That hardware itself has auto-leveling, which is <laughs> odd, and I don't conceptually really understand how it works, but it, it produces beautiful audio, uh, but it is an expensive mic. That one's much, that's like $800 or $900. And we can allude to all of this in the show notes. Yeah, and maybe at some point I'll ask you about uh, how you line out your show notes. But yep. real, real quick, distribution. By the way, show notes. Why are show notes important? They help the listener. They also get people to a website that you can control, where you can develop a direct relationship with your podcast listeners because that is not information you will otherwise have. And if distribution platforms change, you want your audience to travel with you. You can't do that if, unless you have direct communication say via a blog or social or preferably email. Uh, so the show notes is also a way to get people to my site so that they can become an opt-in participant with direct communication from me. That's a, that's a great point because I don't know, I have yet to study these distribution platforms. I know that iTunes is a big podcast medium. I know a lot of people use Stitcher, for example. SoundCloud maybe, but um, the show notes allow you to to curate basically the guide to your show. Um, yeah, you can you, you offer additional resources that are of value, and you also provide yourself with the opportunity to develop a direct line of communication with your listeners. What are some other uh, just to stay on that topic? Other ways of of building community. You know, other ways of of sort of. Um, you're already targeting the audience by giving them actionable information and keeping them in mind. Uh, how do you keep them around? How do you how do you attract more audience members? How do you um, have a listenership coalesce around a podcast? I don't have a magic playbook for this other than just make the interview really, really, really fucking good. I mean, it sounds like such an unhelpful answer, but to use a Silicon Valley analogy maybe, the best company, the fastest growing startups I've ever been involved with have almost, have nearly focused 0% of their attention on marketing in the early days. They're just constantly eliciting user feedback so they can double down on the, making the product as sticky and as 
word of mouth worthy as possible. And the so I haven't thought a whole lot about proactively creating a community around the podcast, but I have thought about trying to create the say seminal fill in the blank subject 101 podcasts on the internet that people can go to. So I will do say a podcast with Dominic D'Agostino, who's a published researcher and scientist. He's very familiar with ketosis, ketogenic diet, fasting, and cancer. And I will put together an episode or a two-part episode in some cases that I intend to be the definitive audio introduction to all things ketosis and ketogenic diet, which is a very hot topic these days. Uh, similarly, I will think about, say, cryptocurrency, which I'm very personally, very much personally interested in, and ask myself, how can I take this easily confusing subject and create a masterclass by incorporating experts who can start from the basic concepts, but also go as deep in the weeds as anyone on the planet and architect that episode. How can you do that? And that's what I did with uh, Naval Ravikant and someone named Nick Szabo, S-Z-A-B-O, who is a demigod within the world of cryptocurrency. And there are a lot of very interesting, there's a lot of very uh, interesting speculation around Nick. Uh, but that ended up being a huge hit in what most people would consider arcane or perhaps just very uh, fringe subject matter. It's an entire podcast on currency, cryptocurrency, the origins of money. I mean, that's, that seems like it would be a very small podcast. It has millions and millions of downloads. And are these people sort of looking for information on cryptocurrency and that's what they find? Is it your existing audience starts passing it around by word of mouth? It's both. Okay. It's both. And I, I really enjoy making podcast episodes for fanatical pre-existing audiences. I would rather have, and by I'm using fanatic <laughs> in the positive sense, uh, of obsessive sort of proselytizers who believe very strongly in the value of fill in the blank. So it could be blockchain, it could be some type of gymnastic strength training, it could be just about anything, the, the health benefits of the ketogenic diet. Uh, I, I very much enjoy creating I'll use the cryptocurrency as an example, an episode where someone who knows nothing about the subject can suddenly talk coherently with someone who is well-versed about cryptocurrency and simultaneously the like alpha nerds who are on the cutting edge and actually developing cryptocurrency still find it interesting enough to listen to. Interesting. That's a unique challenge. Uh, at least for me, and I enjoy it. I really enjoy the challenge. So in that case, I brought in Naval, who is uh, probably the person I go to most for any type of startup-related advice. And for those people who don't know the background, I've invested for a long time. I haven't, I've really stopped, but invested in technology in Silicon Valley for a very long time. So I was early in Facebook and Twitter and Uber and Alibaba and Duolingo and many, many, many others. 
but the uh, Naval is probably the person I go to most for startup advice. He's very, very smart and strategic. And he has spent the last few years learning everything he possibly can about cryptocurrency. So he knew the questions to ask. He knew the expert level questions to ask. And then I could play the, the foil, <laughs> Joe Average, which in that world, at best I was average, so that the, I could look at it with beginner's eyes and say, well, wait a second. You just said X, but you're using this word in a way that I thought I understood, but I don't understand what that means at all. Like, do you mean this, this, or this? And then they would clarify. Uh, so it was a, a tag team effort uh, it, of sorts that worked out really, really well. With your interviewee. That's right. And, and how do you bring that out in them? Is it sort of that old interviewer's tactic of, of uh, just please educate me, I don't understand, can you clarify? I mean... Uh, I, I only interview people about subjects that I have a burning desire to learn more about. So it's, it's, not, it's not hard for me. I'm not, uh, there, there isn't, uh, I think it's more of a sincere interest than a, a tactical approach. Okay. Uh, I'll just be like, guys, like I'm so excited about this, but I feel like an idiot. Like maybe it's because I'm from Long Island. My brain just doesn't move fast enough. I just, I still don't understand what you mean by blockchain. Right? Like, what are we talking about? Because like, can you give me an example that like a knuckle dragger like me might understand outside of computer science because that's also outside of my realm of expertise or something like that, right? But it's, it's, it's the exact same thing I would say to them if we were just having wine at, at a dinner table. But it's also audience avatar stuff because your audience wants you yeah. to, to say that or to yeah. ask that question because they don't understand either. Sure, and I'll fill in the gaps for my audience uh, again, in the interest of making things actionable, if I'm interviewing someone like Dom D'Agostino and they use, if they suddenly say, well, when, you know, when you're measuring beta-hydroxybutyrate, or if, if when, you're, when you're measuring BHB and then move on, and I'll say, Dom, let me just pause for a second. For people who don't know what BHB is, it's beta-hydroxybutyrate. It's how you measure ketone levels in your blood. That is the actual substrate or uh, ketone, I guess what would be a salt maybe, that you measure with a finger prick, much like you would measure your glucose. And it's like, okay, cool. Sorry to interrupt. Like you were saying X, and then we move on. So I, I'm providing the uh, glossary a lot of the time when I do these interviews. It's interesting. You Earlier, you, you used the abstraction really fucking good. Uh, <laughs> and it sounds like the concrete version, the concrete example of that for you is, is the masterclass strategy. Um, Unless I've misunderstood, it sounds yep. like your way of being really fucking good is creating master classes based on your own enthusiasm on topics. Yeah, it is. It is. And there are, there are different approaches that I think could lead to faster growth, but I wouldn't enjoy it. And I think that would lead to a certain malaise that could lead to me quitting the podcast. For instance, uh, many podcasts that follow the interview format are now getting very good at looking at Google Trends, seeing what's in the news. And for instance, I'm blanking on the gent's name, but he was fired after circulating a memo or sending out a memo at Google. And within a week, he was on some of the top podcasts. And that's a very good strategy for capturing uh, explosive interest in a given person. Uh, particularly if you have a website with show links and so on that uh, has a high page rank. Because then when people plug so-and-so name, topical person into Google, 
the podcast will rank very, very highly. And so you end up getting hundreds of thousands uh, of extra downloads, but I don't want to do that. It's the opposite of what I want to do. I do not want advice or conversations that are so topical that they will be primarily irrelevant in six months. I want people to be listening to podcasts that I did years ago, now, and years in the future, which has been the case. So this, I have a very unusual podcast in the sense that my back catalog still gets many millions of downloads every month, including my crappy episode one, which is hilarious to me. Uh, but uh, my intention is to create a class that stands the test of time, which seems like almost a, a quaint, naive goal <laughs> in the jet stream that we assume the internet to be. It's like, no, you put it out and then you have to feed the monster and you have to put something, you're only as good as your last podcast, man. And, and I choose not to live in that world. And lo and behold, by hook or crook, seems to be working. So uh, most people have really strong convictions about what you need to do in podcasting, what you have to do on Instagram. Uh, don't have a lot of evidence, maybe some personal anecdote, maybe a little bit of uh, maybe a few pieces of data, but very little evidence to justify the strength of their convictions. So there's a lot of people chasing the wind, so to speak. Yeah, or just uh, a lot of people doing the same thing, which is anathema to how I like to compete. I compete by choosing and defining a space that people just neglect entirely or think won't work. <laughs> uh, it's a lot easier. It's a much easier game. <laughs> It's like playing chess against an opponent who, <laughs> who isn't there. It's, it's a lot easier. And you've had, I mean, this has folded back into your brand. Uh, and I want to get back to some, some final nuts and bolts thing. But really, your podcast folded back into Tools of Titans. Yeah. And your new book, which is going to drop probably around the time that this podcast does, yeah. Tribe of Mentors, is that also an offshoot of the podcast? It's an offshoot in, in uh, some respects. So Tools of Titans was... Uh, I mean, it's a it's a choose your own adventure guide to the highlights of the podcast uh, with some additional material, certainly, and uh, that ended up turning out exceptionally well. Really happy with how Tools of Titans turned out, and it's uh, I mean, some of my a lot of my readers' favorite book that I put out, which is both. Uh, Exciting and depressing at the same time <laughs> because the other books were so much harder. Uh, but I've learned in my advancing years that, you know, maybe you don't have to redline for everything. Like maybe that's not the greatest uh, indicator of eventual quality or value to other people. Uh, so Tools of Titans uh, was a, a huge win for me. Most successful book launch I've ever had. Uh, and how's that measured just in terms of total units of sales? Okay. I mean, more than 100,000 copies in the first week alone, and then it's it's still going very, very strong. I think it's still in the top, like, two, 300 on Amazon uh, and just kind of hovers there. And uh, then Tribe of Mentors uh, was uh, a, a different exercise where I took the... I took eight of my rapid-fire questions from the podcast that I'd refined over 300 interviews to be both listener and guest favorites slightly modified them, added three more of my own, all of which are intended to help me personally, 
and sent them out to 200 plus people recognizing that not all of them would respond and asked them to answer their favorite, say three to four questions or more if the spirit moved them. So I, I used the experience and skills. All right, so here, this is actually a beautiful illustration of what I was talking about earlier. We were talking about choosing projects based on the skills and relationships you develop. All right, so I interviewed 300 people. This means I know 300 people. Oh, I shouldn't actually, that shouldn't be just a simple statement. I, I have become friends with almost everyone I've interviewed. And we've done business deals together, we've uh, taken, we've traveled together. Uh, I, I've really developed long-term relationships with these people because uh, in almost all cases they had a great experience in the interview. And then I delivered on the promises I made in the beginning. Uh, what a novel concept, but apparently it doesn't get done a lot. And uh, so I have those relationships, A. Then I have the skills, i.e. the questions I've refined over several years. And so I took those questions, explained what I was trying to do with the book to these 300 people and said, who do you think should be in the book? <laughs> and before you know it, my book's half done uh, based on that alone. And that also comes back to guest recruitment. Now I would say 70% of the people I have on the podcast come through past guests. Do you get publicists now? Um, I do. I do get publicists okay. reaching out, which uh, which is totally fine and actually very useful, as long as they can be uh, their playbook can be adapted to my format. Because many of them are going to coach their clients to come in and say, as I wrote about in my book, coming out November twenty first, Tribe of Mentors. Short advice from the best in the world, da, 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 and to drop that every 30 seconds, which would make me insane. Uh, thankfully, I, I have that pregame conversation with everyone, and they're generally, if they're on my podcast, they've had enough experience in the world that they totally get it. Uh, yeah, so I do now have publicists coming to me, and I have made it clear that I'm also not going to be podcast number 10. It's just not of interest to me. So if we're going to do it, it's like I want to be number one and I want to come out probably two weeks before the book comes out. It's usually book pitches. Uh, was Maria Sharapova, was that? That was, that was book related, yeah. yeah. And um, Because that, that was reverse engineered. It's like, oh, that's interesting, Tim. Interviewed Maria Sharapova. And then like a week later, her book was out and it's like, hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the podcast, man, did I luck out on that. That's an example of where uh, circumstance and luck seemed to the outward world to be a, a, a genius plan and action, which was my episode coming out the day that she won her first comeback match in the U.S. Open. <laughs> and people were like, oh my God, amazing timing, genius. And I was like, ah, okay, I'll take credit for it. But it's just pure dumb luck. Uh, yeah, the, the Sharapova episode was, uh, I was very happy with that episode. Uh, she's very, very smart, and uh, so so that's how it all came together, though. And well, it sounds like just the concept of good faith helps. You know that you, yeah. you you do an interview in good faith. You have certain principles and operating procedures. You keep good faith on that, and you interview an actor who enjoyed his experiences, recommends another actor. I assume. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, but it's actually better than that because. Uh, and I keep saying 300 interviews. You don't have to get to three. The reason I got to 300 interviews is because of the 
the snowball effect of maintaining this goodwill and having that pregame talk and then delivering. And also, key point, uh, unless they volunteer and ask how they can help, I never ask people to promote their own episode. That's a huge pet peeve that I have is when people are like, hey, I want to have you on my podcast. Oh, could you do all the promotion for your own episode and share it with your audience and do it three times a week? And I'm like, what the? Why would I do that if I'm coming to you for public relations with a public that I don't already reach? It doesn't make any sense. And it's for me. And it's uh, very frustrating. Uh, and I certainly deal with that constantly. So I almost never ask people to promote unless they said, hey, I'd love to promote. Let me know when it's out and I'll do what I can. To promote your podcast. That they appeared on. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. No, I, I do a lot of podcasts and, and that's quite common. Yeah. Um, but, but because I'm an underachiever in social media anyway, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's yeah, weird so, for me. But, but even if... Uh, it's just another, it's such an easy differentiator. It's like, do the fucking work yourself. Do the heavy lifting so they don't have to. Make it easy, and then they will recommend your show to their friends. It's, it's playing the long game. And uh, so I, I almost never, I, I, I struggle to come up with one case where I've asked someone to share an episode of, uh, of theirs that was published through my podcast, it's I, I struggle to think about it. Uh, yeah, and it, what I, where I was going with it's better than that. As you said, you interview one actor and then they recommend their friend, another actor, be on the show. It turns out that people who are the best at what they do or very good at what they do know people in many many fields who are very good at what they do. Well, like, isn't Rick Rubin friends with Laird Hamilton? Is yeah, that that's how I met Laird. Yeah, yeah. And I went to work out with Laird the first time with Neil Strauss and uh, and Rick Rubin. And then you get to know Laird, and then Laird knows a bunch of amazing people in different worlds. And on and on it goes. And, and, or you meet, say, Peter Tia, who's a doctor, a uh, very close friend I've had on the podcast several times, one of the most brilliant people I know, also hilarious. And he introduced me to Jocko Willink, Hired Navy SEAL commander who's gone on to create his own digital universe. I noticed that. Yeah. And has done exceptionally well. And his first public interview ever was on my podcast. Uh, and then, lo and behold, you know, Peter also knows uh, director Darren Aronofsky, who directed The Wrestler, Black Swan, and so on. Darren's a fascinating guy. I listened to that. Yeah. And so I had Darren on the podcast, and Darren ended up in the book. And then, you know, at some point, you know, hopefully go out and have a bunch of tequila with Darren and we'll probably find somebody else. And they're like, you know, you should fucking interview. I know you should interview. He's crazy. My friend, this guy, you know, and then on we go to the next, to the next person or you name it, you know, Maria Sharpova, uh, not Sharpova, uh, Maria Popova introduced me to a, a number of very fascinating people. And uh, it doesn't take many, doesn't take many at all to build up that goodwill, but so few people do the pregame and the follow-up. Uh, it's such an easy way, or I should say maybe it's simple. Maybe it's not easy. Maybe that's why people don't do it. That's such a simple way to distinguish yourself. Well, I think this is something that can be unique to podcasting too, because you aren't 
ABC local number five. You know, you're not the Wall Street Journal. It's not an institutional approach to talking to people. Yeah. And there's not institutional expectations. There's just the expectations that you have and, yeah. and your own definition of what's really fucking good. Yeah. And another benefit of running lean, and I have people to help with, say, sponsorship now and also scheduling and production and so on, but super lean team. I own everything. I don't have to get any approvals. Right. So, for instance, why don't why don't more producers offer their guests final cut? Well, it may be in some cases that they want to get the salacious sound bites they can capitalize on. There is a lot of that. There's too much of that, which is precisely why I didn't want to inject any of that negativity into into my podcast. Uh, secondly, if there's a staff with a director and then uh, a supervisor and the boss, you as the interviewer can't just unilaterally decide to give people final cut. That's going to make, that might make other people's jobs difficult or it might obviate the need for certain jobs. Uh oh, wait a second, but we have two full time editors. Got to keep those hands busy. You know, and it's just so much cleaner for me and where I was at the time and still where I am now to just be like, you know what? I don't want to fucking do X. I don't want to do X. Fuck it. Or like recently, uh, you know, very sadly, uh, one of my friends uh, died uh, just just maybe a week ago of uh, complications related to uh, metastasized pancreatic cancer. And I had just recorded a podcast with him two weeks earlier or so. And I had to go back, as you would expect, and re-record the intro and change things quite a bit. And it was really difficult for me. And uh, almost all of my podcast episodes now have sponsors. And the sponsors, it's like a 90% renewal rate. It's a very successful show for sponsors. And I just told my team, I'm like, yeah, no sponsors this episode. It's poor taste. It's just, I can't, I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. And um, so, yeah, just yanked them. No sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> if they get pissed, yeah, have them yeah, tell them they can wait. Like, and if they don't want to wait and they get really upset, tell them they can take a walk. They're they're rejected as sponsors because they're high maintenance. You know. Well, it's interesting. You know, that's an ethical call. You know, you, yeah. you don't feel right doing that. And um, I think one reason why more traditional interviewers don't give that first right of um, final cut is the old journalistic ethic, the, yeah. the, the institutional ethic, which is well-meaning, that it goes back a hundred years where you don't interview a politician and let him choose right, what, right, right. what is included and not. And so I think really you take away the institutional level of the broadcast yeah. and then the, the ethos becomes personal. You know? sure. And so final cut is not a problem because you're not, because these are good faith conversations. You know? yeah. you're, you're not trying to, to, to get the politician to really talk about the bond issue. You're just right. having a conversation. Yet the the ethic can come through this much more human thing, you know, where you had a, a conversation and and now that person very sadly is gone, and and of course you're not going to monetize throw uh, yeah the interview so. <laughs> throw ads on top of it yeah uh, so back poolside uh, here in in uh, in Austin Texas, which is a little bit colder than it was at the beginning of the uh, conversation, but uh, yeah, it's been a chilly few days as far as Austin Texas goes, and we've added a few layers. Uh, and you, you're brand new in Austin, aren't you? I am, yeah. yeah. I've only uh, really been here for, I guess, kind of settling in on and off for a few months and bought a place 
pretty uh, decent period of time before that. And uh, excited to explore new chapters, yeah. Awesome. Uh, it's, it's, I, I never visited your, I met you in San Francisco once, but not at your house. So I don't know yeah. what your setup was there, but this is a very pleasant area. Yeah, this is much calmer than my place in SF. SF in general is more congested. It's more concentrated. And uh, it's nice to live now someplace where I don't hear traffic. Yeah. That's very nice. And except for the occasional airplane. Um, except for the occasional airplane. As, as our lav mics <laughs> yeah. might have picked up, uh, it's very nice and quiet here. Well, um, at, at the very end, I might ask you about some personal things. Because, again, this is the yeah. Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. Yeah. I might bug you a little bit about Japanimation and... and um, uh, psychedelics and things like that. Sure. But, uh, or Japanimation on psychedelics. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or the, the creation of Japanimation on psychedelics in Japan. We'll, we'll see what we'll come up with. Um, yeah. And actually I want to ask you about music, but, uh, let's jump back in on a few, uh, tie up some, some loose ends on the podcasting thing, just cause we have covered so much useful ground uh, mm -hmm. already. So, I have written down just a few things to come back to, and that includes guest prep, any details of guest prep that you might um, want to share more about. I'm also curious about recording that intro segment, which is done afterwards, and I'm curious about the length and content of that. Um, any advice you might have about um, ads and monetization, which I know you, your, your big advice is wait. Mm -hmm. uh, what else do I have down on the list? Uh, frequency. Now, is yours is your, your podcast year round, or you go season by season? It's year round, six episodes a month. Uh, okay, it's a it's an average of six episodes a month. Okay, wow, that's and uh, that makes it easier to plan an editorial calendar. Whereas in the beginning, though, I mean, the first hundred plus episodes, I was maybe two hundred episodes, I was flying by the seat of my pants. So <laughs> I might have four one month, eight the next. It was. Be a ten one month, none the next. It was all over the place. Uh, so I I wouldn't necessarily strive for a a very very high degree of structure in the beginning. But I've settled at six episodes a month, and I feel like anything beyond that, in the interest of say scaling monetization, is a disservice to listen to regular listeners who can't possibly, or most, can't possibly absorb that many hours of audio in a given month. And it will cause, and I've seen this happen with other podcasts, a degree of anxiety among regular listeners who then stop listening altogether. I, I have an old school uh, reference for this. Subscribing to The New Yorker or The Economist, pretty soon you're, you're, you're behind six issues and you get that anxiety. Yeah, you just pulled ripcord. At least yeah. that's, that's what I did. I did that with National Geographic. Yeah. <laughs> End up with a very pretty stack of, of intellectual magazines that I never read. Yeah. No, I would magnanimously give them to my sister. You know, like, I, oh, here. And in fact, I just wanted to unburden Here's some my old own. economists. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> here, National <laughs> Geographic has less time dependency. Like, hey, if you want to read what happened to the <laughs> Greek prime minister three years ago, here's a, here's a great back issue. To my sister, Kristen, I'm sorry, burdening you with all those dated magazines. But yeah, so... so, so Frequency is currently six per month, keeping in mind that the length ranges from 90 minutes up to three plus hours. I find, I find the sweet spot is 90 minutes to two and a half hours. Uh, brain glucose, <laughs> or like metabolism of, 
of glucose in the brain seems to tap out at about two and a half hours for most folks. And uh, let's see, then intro music, I wouldn't think too much about, quite frankly. Uh, like I said, I got some cheap royalty-free music, <laughs> threw some stuff on top. <laughs> like a cheesy robot voice at the end. And I oh, no, it's a totally a cheesy yeah. robot oh, voice. Yeah, yeah. And I was wondering at first, like, well, Tim is pretty intentional about stuff. Is that just like something to burrow into somebody's, you know, oh, brain? Yeah. I, it was just to be an idiot. I mean, okay. I thought it was funny. Yeah. And uh, but, but like, what about interview format? Do you... Do you bring talking points forward to tell the audience what they're going to get? Do you? How do you? You're talking about the intro, right? Yeah. So you've done the interview. You go back and you're recording the int the intro to the interview. Yeah. Tell me how you do that. Sure. Uh, first, I would just say that on the music side, there are podcasts that do very well without intro music. So <laughs> don't kill yourself. That's not the right place to invest a lot of uh, a lot of calories. Uh, but sure, find something as a placeholder if it, if it makes you happy. The and you could most certainly find a service. I bet Fiber or one of these could uh, could probably provide a reasonable intro for very very little money. Just want to make sure that they've signed something that indicates they've secured the proper rights for whatever they're providing you. Uh, the introduction that I record afterwards is typically, I would say, around two minutes long. And in the beginning, I will normally give my usual 10 to 20 seconds of explaining what the Tim Ferriss Show is, in case it's a new listener. Not, not all shows do this. But it's important to me for me to distinguish why this interview format show is different. And it's the practical, tactical, takeaway nature of what I'm fishing for. Then uh, I will look at the conversation, any notes I have, anything I've highlighted that I think might tantalize and excite my listeners. I will normally type that out in Evernote. So here's what happens. This will be, I think, the most useful way to explain the process. find a guest, let's just say via Twitter, we go back and forth, and that direct contact is very important. I just as a, as a side note, I think that going after celebrities is largely a waste of time if you're going through proper channels. <laughs> so if you're going through the publicist, who then goes to the agent, who then goes to the manager, who then goes to the celebrity, maybe, uh, it's just never gonna happen, or it'll take forever, and it's a huge time sink. I would encourage people to mostly ignore celebrity unless you can contact them directly. Uh, if you look at my top 25 episodes, most popular and statistically analyzed with the help of my brother, who's a PhD in statistics, at least half of them are from are featuring guests that my listeners have never heard of before. So who's, who are just, some of your counterintuitive just, top just make 20 it people? Good. Jocko Willink, hugely, massively, popular episode tim.blog forward slash jocko j-o-c-k-o for people interested uh legendary navy seal commander from the special ops world had never done a public interview uh, and now has his own podcast now has his own podcast has had multiple best-selling books and so on he's become an industry unto himself 
uh, let's see, uh, Debbie Millman, who is certainly in the design world, I think very well respected, certainly well respected and well known, but uh, not a celebrity per se. Uh, she is one of the top five most popular and most downloaded episodes of all time. And uh, she in that episode, I should note, uh, I noticed, this is coming back to guest prep, in looking at past interviews she had done and reading the text, I noticed that she never talked about her childhood. It was always one or two lines, then they moved on to something else. And I asked her in the pre-game conversation if we could delve into her childhood a bit because I never saw it discussed. And she said, maybe, let me see how I feel. And ended up that she talked about extensive sexual abuse that she had suffered as a child for the first time publicly on my podcast. Goodness. Um, this also, this type, that type of confessional, uh, confessional is not the right word, but that type of very vulnerable conversation also happened with uh, Shay Carl, who's a, a YouTube phenom, raised Mormon, uh, who talked about his battle with alcoholism for the first time. Uh, but coming back to the process, so I, I find someone on Twitter, let's just say, introduce them to my assistant, via email. Donna then has a podcast prep document which uh, outlines the nitty-gritty of getting ready for, say, a Skype interview. Make sure you turn off Dropbox, Slack, this, this, and this. There's a checklist of sorts. Uh, here's the, here are a few options for audio. If you would like a mic, we will gladly mail you an ATR2100. So I routinely use Amazon Prime to mail mics to people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a Texan dog in the background, folks. And then uh, Donna will also ask for a few different biographical pieces. Uh, for instance, the preferred headshots, preferred bios, all of which she puts into a Dropbox folder. Right? Then, <laughs> tell me if this is too much, but this is, the, this is the meat. Then she goes into Slack, into the Tim Ferriss Show channel, and has, say, Rolf Potts prep material linked to Dropbox. So now everyone on my team has access to that prep material. All right. I do my research, reading of interviews, watching of interviews, and I prepare for an interview with you, let's say. And, and real quick, your team, meaning like your producer or your editor? My or? team, meaning uh, my assistant, if there's any follow-up required, my effectively CMO who handles all the sponsorship interaction as well as editorial calendar scheduling and he quarterbacks to editors. So he would take the raw files, take the Dropbox link, send it to an editor and they would piece it together. And also I have a researcher who sometimes gets involved. Okay, so now we've recorded the interview. Right? We already talked about the lay of the land of the interview. Well before, uh, just, just to clarify something, um... Do you have a research file? Do you have someone who prepares a research file? Do you do online research before the interview? There are a few different things that I do. I have, uh, and if this dog gets too much, just let me know. We can well, migrate. Th this is the raw, gritty reality <laughs> All right, this is, of episode one. This is audio verite, everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Rough and tumble streets of Austin. Uh, we, will, we shall forge ahead. Uh, I had no one help me with prep until maybe 20 episodes ago. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so I did all the prep myself. I still do a lot of prep myself, but I found a format uh, that works very well uh, for my researcher to help me prep. What he will do is watch three or four long form interviews and his job is very specifically to pull out what he feels are the home run stories. He will identify, say, five or six really good stories that the interviewees are clearly comfortable telling, that they seem excited to tell, and he'll provide me with cues that could be used to line up those stories. And I, unlike inside the actor studio, where James Lipton knows the answer to every single question he's going to ask, and never deviates in the order of his questions. Huh. That is uninteresting to me. Uh, it's very effective, but it's not what I want to do. So I will have 90% questions I do not know the answer to, but then I want to front load the interview with a few golden nuggets that I know are guaranteed crowd pleasers. Okay. And those are some of the stories. It also allows them to warm up. Okay. And that document would then be put usually in a Google Doc, and that would be dropped into where? Into the Tim Ferriss Show channel on Slack. So Rolf Potts interview review with stories Dropbox link. Right? And uh, once we've recorded the interview, and feel free to jump in, but once we've recorded the interview, what happens next is I export the WAV files as separate tracks into a Rolf Potts audio folder and I allow those to sync via Dropbox so that they're backed up. Uh, then I go into Evernote and I create a note called Rolf, Rolf Potts Podcast. At the top I put headlines in all caps. There are a number of uh, subheadings in this document. You have headlines, edits, audio files, blog posts. And under each of those headings, so for headlines, after the interview, while it's still fresh in my head, I'll write down a couple of different potential headlines that could be used, both for uploading to our audio host, but also for social testing. Meaning and Headlines email. meaning the title of the, of, the interview, of the episode? Of the episode. Okay. Right. So is it episode 315, you know, comma, master traveler? Is it storytelling on the road? Is it, who knows, right? Tactics from a, a global traveler. What Silencing happened? dogs with your mind. Silencing <laughs> dogs with your mind. Uh, Which and, I think it was Time, Wealth, and Lateral Thinking was the name of my interview with you years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. and I, I tested multiple headlines via social. And you, via, you, you ask people via social? or uh, No, I would put out multiple posts with different headlines, same image, and see which gets the highest number of and, and the winner and is the final and the title. winner then I will take that winning headline and replace whatever placeholder blog post title I had hmm. and maybe even change the name of the episode in say iTunes and so on all right so I have the headline ideas the next is edits so why do I put edits before audio files because I want to make sure that everybody sees the edit notes some of them can be important, like, oh, no, I talked about this lawsuit that I shouldn't have talked about. We need to cut that out. Or, oh, no, Tim's stupid goatee was scratching against the audio at this point, and I told him to knock it off, so let's cut that little interjection. Okay, let's take that out. Or some, somebody made some stupid, not stupid, but 
<laughs> made some joke about their like wife or husband that they know is going to bite them in the ass. It's like, let's take that out. Rough time code and uh, any notes related to edits. Then next we have audio files. Audio files is a, a link to the Dropbox audio folder. And it might still say intro needed, so they know that the intro is coming. Then the blog post, and the blog post is effectively a script for my introduction, at least the initial text. So it'll say, you know, this episode features none other than Rolf Potts, and then I'll put your Twitter handle in parentheses after that, and we'll have your preferred bio that I'll probably tweak a little bit just to be in my voice. In this wide-ranging conversation, we cover a lot of topics, including, I look at my notes, oh, we really talked about whatever it might be, you know? Creating Japanimation while on psychedelics, fantastic. That'll definitely get some play. That's gonna be one of the bullets. And I'll lay out five bullets, and then uh, sometimes I will throw a caveat in, which is very common, for instance. It, it, it is incredibly frequent that it takes 10 minutes to just get warmed up when people are slightly on guard and to wait for them to go off guard, I realize it's gonna be slow for people listening in the beginning and I'll just say, it takes us about 10 minutes to get warmed up, be patient, it gets really meaty and- You'll say that in the intro. I'll say it in the intro. Okay, cool. Uh, and without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rolf Potts, boom, and that's it. Uh, and I'll do sometimes four or five takes of that, choose the best one and uh, then I drop it into Dropbox with the rest of the audio file, and off to the races. I will then, this sounds like a lot, guys, but it happens very, very quickly. Uh, I will take a link to that Evernote doc and go to the Tim Ferriss Show uh, channel on Slack and put, you know, at Adam, who handles this, new podcast ready for editing, in all caps, Rolf Potts, colon, link to the uh, uh, Evernote doc that has everything he will need and everything the editor will, editor will need. And then my job is done. I don't record, uh, I do not do live sponsor reads. Uh, I pre-record all of that so that I, I know I have the best read that will convert the highest. And my job's done. So then your assistants edit, do the blog post, all the rest of the stuff? All that is handled by other people. Okay. In the beginning, I did it all myself, so I know how to do it, but it's not the best use of my time right now. Sure. My, my, my time is better spent on figuring out how to create the next masterclass, yeah. which requires quite a bit of planning, if I'm going to do it really, really well. Yeah. yeah. And then, just because I think my audience will be curious, even though I'm a long way from this point, at what point did you shift into monetization? The monies. <laughs> the monies. And, uh, <laughs> and then how do, you, how do you manage that now? I mean, it's, from the sounds of it, it's, it's worked really well for you. Yeah. Um, yeah and so what great. insight might you have as far as um, when to and how to monetize? Yeah. Uh, so just to give people a top-line assessment, uh, I, I currently, the podcast generates more revenue on an annual basis than all of my books combined uh, several fold and I don't think that would have been possible if I had been distracted early on with trying to monetize and I'll explain why when you have very few downloads the available pool of prospective ways to monetize 
are all a bit hokey and uh, in some cases they're affiliate deals uh, and you're not interacting with generally speaking sponsors who are going to be able to scale with your show if it becomes very successful the the, the most critical sacrifice that you make when you focus on monetization too early is you start doing things just because you think they will be popular and get a lot of downloads and your creativity in my opinion is highly highly compromised and the the work becomes secondary to the pitch that you make to advertisers i've seen this happen to quite a few people and they by the way all of those people have stopped podcasting uh that i'm aware of on the other hand if you get to the point where your podcast is getting say a hundred thousand downloads per episode which is a very respectable very very respectable number uh you have done a proof of concept on a number of levels. First, you've demonstrated that through the craft alone, you, you've created a product that people like. By the way, if you can't do that first, you're only going to have a few months of monetizing maybe, and it'll peter out because you haven't created something that has a good product market fit, right? So you get to 100,000. Second, you have numbers that can get the attention of companies that spend millions of dollars on podcasts. And whether those are companies that some people listening to this podcast may never have heard of, but nonetheless are very fast growing and put a lot of budget into podcasts, like MeUndies, underwear company. <laughs> They're great underwear. Uh, they started with me really early on. Uh, 99designs, another one that started with me very early on. If you listen to podcasts, let's just say the top 50 on iTunes, you're going to hear, at this point, the same 20 companies. Blue is, Apron, yeah, Blue, MailChimp. Blue Apron, MailChimp. It's the, all the same folks, for the most part. Uh, those companies have the budget and the willingness to grow with you so that when you get to a million downloads an episode or 500,000 downloads an episode, you don't have to start from scratch and find new sponsors, which can be very time-consuming. This also brings up the question of whether or not you should have an ad sales partner or do it yourself. If you do not have business building or business management experience, I would probably advise that you look at companies to partner with, whether that's a Panoply or a mid-roll is probably the best known. Uh, I am very comfortable selling and putting together sales pipelines and training people to sell my products effectively. Uh, so it made, it was a very easy decision for me to decide to do it internally. I can handle the processes. I'm not scared off by accounting and any types of accounts receivable and so on. Did you start doing it um, yourself or once you monetized, you had a team? Uh, I did not have a team initially. And to come back to the, I suppose, underlying question of what would this look like if it were easy in the interest of keeping me going, right? Because it's like, if it's a Tim Ferriss show and I stop doing it, it's hard to continue with the Tim Ferriss show. Uh, 
I asked myself, what would this look like if it were easy? And sponsors approached me. They said, okay, the way it usually works is we commit to X, Y, and Z episodes. We pay you net 30 or net 60, which means 30 or 60 days after the episode runs. You give us analytics access so we can look at the numbers. And um, <laughs> so what I decided, not everybody has the luxury of doing this, but I, I do not regret it. it maybe it was the most important business decision I made related to the podcast. I said, okay, uh, I'm not going to give a bunch of people analytics access uh, because it just creates a meddling that I don't want to contend with. And everybody has to prepay. You are going to get your money's worth or I give your money back. It's super simple. Hmm. And, but as a, as a very lean at that point, solo operation effectively, I don't have the desire or the capacity to deal with a bunch of accounting and chasing you down just in case somebody gets sick or whatever it might be. Don't want to deal with any of it. So prepay, if it doesn't work, I'll give you the money back. <laughs> and, and I've done that every single sponsor since. Uh, so that is, that also narrows the field of entities I can interact with. Because if I'm going through intermediaries like a creative agency, that causes all sorts of issues. <laughs> the whole pay up front thing doesn't go very well, go over very well when you have intermediaries. So that, that requires typically that I'm interacting directly with companies. And um, then much like with the uh, podcast guests themselves who then go on to refer uh, people to me, the sponsors who do well, who are the vast majority, because I turn down 80, 90% of the companies who come to me. Why? Because I don't use their products myself personally. If I cannot become a power, if I wouldn't tell my friends about a product over drinks or at dinner, they don't end up on the podcast. And that means I've turned away millions of dollars. I mean, probably at this point, like more than $10 million of sponsorships I, who are ready to pay upfront $500,000 plus I've turned away because it only takes one product that's iffy that maybe I wouldn't really get behind otherwise to lose complete trust with my audience and credibility. Uh, so by the time they make it, I have a very high confidence level that they'll convert well and want to re-up. And the only way, by the way, that you can get a volume discount course people are going to ask is by buying as many episodes as possible in advance because my rates continually go up aha uh -huh. uh -huh. so i'm like you want a discount i'll tell you what best way to get a discount is to buy a lot of episodes right now because my rates are going to go up next quarter so they buy by the episode they buy by the episode right so i would say if you want i'm currently say guaranteeing let's call it whatever the number might be just to keep the math somewhat simple like look if i'm guaranteeing 500,000 downloads by week six after publication. Uh, and I'm charging, say, $60 CPM, which is what I charge, which is very, very premium. Then uh, two quarters from now, after a book launch that ties in the podcast, I anticipate that I'll be guaranteeing 800,000 and charging accordingly. So if you want to save money, buy in advance, buy 12 episodes right now. And then we could schedule out over the next two quarters and you will be saving, you know, uh, a, a substantial, uh, well, I guess 
25% or so on the cost of your episodes. And that works. People do well. And then I will ask those companies, do you know any other companies that are non-competitive to yours that could be a good fit for this podcast? And that works. And it works. Hmm. Because, why? Because I Because it delivers such returns that they look good by referring their friend to a form of advertising that has a very, very low CPA, cost per acquisition for new customers. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, I gotta say, compared to all the other smashing my head against a wall that I do, like writing books, relatively easy. But that's by design. It didn't happen accidentally. I had to resist the temptation to complicate or to do whatever the consensus is repeatedly. So it sounds like simplicity is just underpinning everything here. All of it. All yeah. of it. Yeah. What have we missed? Is there anything else uh, for me and then me as sort of the avatar for the beginning podcaster to keep in mind moving forward? Before we transition into Japanimation on psychedelics. <laughs> do it for yourself. Make each episode interesting to you, fun for you. And it will be fun for the audience. Listeners are not dumb. They have highly attuned intuition, especially with the concentration that can come from audio only without the visual distraction. And if you are pretending to be interested, it's very obvious. So choose people, choose topics that you're stoked about. And if you're excited and you're good at asking questions, it can be anything you could talk to for instance i interviewed someone who, who's also done very little media he's a he's a master japanese knife smith and we talked about knife smithing the entire time very popular episode hmm. but it's not like i did a bunch of market research and decided that on google trends it seems that japanese okay. knife smithing is the is the is the search term to bet on i'm just a nerd who loves japan happens to love knives, let's put those two together, PB&J, hot damn, cool, and we'll talk about knives for two hours in Japan and nerd out about Japanese proverbs. How many people in my audience are really into Japanese proverbs? Not many, but if I'm really into it, and this gentleman, Murray Carter, who became the 18th generation master knifesmith in this lineage from Japan, other people will be interested. You can, you can get them interested. So do it for yourself, and the rest, the rest falls in line. Don't try to create something for an imaginary audience that's different from you. Do not do that. It sounds like um, maybe one of my take-homes is just have the podcast have a point of view, you know, yeah. um, which is a good advice for travel writing and, and other things as well. When you, that was Tim zipping the zipper. Just that was me unzipping my pants. <laughs> <laughs> just scared the dog away. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that has been... That was, a, that was a joke. I was zipping up my hoodie. <laughs> well, I was about to say, and, and that concludes the Rolls yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> the secret sign has been transmitted. Uh, no, no, I just said that... Um, and we'll see, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see where, where my podcast is in a year and I'm, I'm being pretty chill about it. But I think the idea of having a point of view, because that, those are my favorite podcasts to listen to, you know. Yeah, have a point of view, but also would you keep doing it 
even if, if, even if you just had your cost covered, right? So would you keep doing it? Are you developing the relationships, skills, acquiring the knowledge that would make it worthwhile in and of itself? Yeah. And maybe you just pretend like the audio equipment isn't there. So forget about the recording component, just the conversations. Would you take the time every week to do what you're envisioning for your podcast because you'd be so stoked, you'd be that stoked to do it? If the answer is yes, uh, the prospects are very good for the podcast. Well, we'll see. This has been episode one of uh, the Deviate with Rolf Paz podcast with our guest, Tim Ferriss. And we actually haven't deviated. We've sort of, um, I guess we've put Tim in the interviewee seat. Uh, but to deviate from everything else. Yeah, let's go nuts. Give me, give me a five-minute story. I'm going to go back to my notes. Tell me a story about Japanimation on psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tend to keep my, my Japanimation and psychedelic consumption separate. Uh, I am not a, all right, which order, in which order to, to, to tackle these? My favorite movie of all time is almost certainly Spirited Away, uh, which was made by Studio Ghibli, which is at least at the time run by Miyazaki Hayao. And I've spent a fair amount of time in Japan. I speak Japanese. I was an exchange student from 15 to 16. And, uh, enjoy the fact that Japan produces a lot of fantasy, and by fantasy I don't mean sexual fantasy, although they have plenty of that for those people interested, but more the fantastical Alice in Wonderland slash Game of Thrones slash uh, Tolkien type world building that is designed for adult consumption. And does it draw on Japanese folk traditions? I, I asked because Game of Thrones and Tolkien both, I was just in Iceland and the saga tradition feels like it underpins yeah. a lot of that. Is there an is there a ancient tradition uh, underpinning uh, this storytelling? I wouldn't say all of it, but there is a cultural, uh, I suppose there's Yen, just a cultural less, expectation less that everyone can find a comic book they would be interested in, whether it's a grandmother or a hmm. salaryman. If you want to find a riveting comic book about Go players with like a dash of God knows what, like black magic in it, you could probably find that comic book. So it's multi-generational. It's not a... Oh, it's absolutely multi-generational. You will see people of all different ages reading manga on the subways and the trains in Japan, for sure. Uh, and I love that. I love the fact that you have these, generally speaking, not always, but widely repressed... <laughs> <laughs> highly polite folks and I love Japan I mean I, I really identify with Japan and feel partially Japanese so I say that in a very loving way but they they have these creative outlets that are pure fiction and fantasy in many respects uh, also incredible historical non-fiction in the form of manga of every conceivable type so if, if there's some historical events the Declaration of Independence the, the Meiji Restoration period, the Great Depression, you can probably find a 10-part manga series in wow. Japan that is incredibly well done. Uh, and as someone who wanted to be a comic book penciler for 10 years of my life, I, really, I wanted, that was my plan, my career plan was to become a comic book penciler. 
Do you read these in Japanese or do you read translations? I read them in Japanese generally, but I also, my Japanese isn't so good that I won't run into vocab I don't know. So if, you know, if I'm reading a comic book, like uh, I learned Japanese by reading a comic book called Rokudenashi Bruzu, which is a comic book about high school gangs. And there are all these fight scenes. And so vocab would pop up, pop up like, Momaku Hakuri, which is detached retina. Well, I'm not going to know what the hell detached retina is. <laughs> uh -huh. So I'd have an electronic dictionary that I could use always at my side to look these things up. Uh, so the Japanimation and uh, the manga culture is just a, a, a beautiful oddity in this otherwise very serious regimented culture uh, in, in many capacities that... I find fascinating, endlessly fascinating. There are, if you want to talk about ancient traditions, so I mentioned fantasy isn't necessarily sexual fantasy. But it sometimes is. There's, it a, sometimes there's a scene is. in Lost in Translation where Scarlett Johansson is sort of looking over and some guy has a sort of a naked lady uh, Oh, it's, it's far more, yeah, I mean, that's a gentle way to put it. I mean, you'll mm -hmm. see people very unashamedly, unabashedly reading, uh, like, in English, they might call it hentai. Hentai is like, sort of uh, pervert slash sexual comic material, but it's intense. Like I remember sitting, I'm 15, I'm in my school uniform. I have my, my Judah uniform wrapped up and tied up over my shoulder, my backpack. And on my way to school, it's like 9 a.m. in the morning, right? And there's this saradimang, like a salary man, sitting right next to me in a suit with his Coke bottle glasses, little comb over reading this comic book i mean he has people on either side he's sitting right next to me and it's tentacle porn so for those who don't know what that is all you can you can imagine it's fairly literal it's it's tentacles creatures with tentacles invading the orifices uh of women uh in various contexts and maybe it's the whole story maybe it's part of the story turns out that tentacle porn goes back centuries. This is a thing in Japan. They have wood oh, they have, in paintings. They have isn't paintings it? and woodblock printings of weird tentacle porn. What on earth is that about? I have no idea what the origins but are. This was your first experience with such a thing. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. And then there's they they take that and they put it into animation. I think there was one called like Urotsuki Urotsuki Doji or something like that. And I was like, good God. Like it's not my thing. It's a, a little I'm intense, but that's a little, not my breed of intense. It's just not for me. And uh, it's also not made any easier. Like, even if I found it hot, I have to imagine some, like, oily-skinned nerd dude who's, like, 24 making the animation. So I'm like, nah, like I, I can't stop thinking about that guy. So that doesn't get me very far. But uh, I digress, which is kind of the point. So... The the psychedelics are kept very much separate and have nothing to do with Japan. Well, actually, really quick, you were before I, I threw in this whole sexy um, manga on the on the subway. You were yeah. going to say something about ancient tradition stories. Oh, uh, I don't see all too much of a connection. But the reason I was tying in the ancient traditions uh, was the mention of the chemical porn woodblock prints because people I, I've met people who have come across this, whether deliberately or accidentally, and said, oh, it's so weird. I guess when manga became really popular 20 years ago, this became a thing somehow. It's like, no, this goes back hundreds of years. Uh, and there are certainly uh, 
mythologies and mythical creatures like something called the kappa which is kind of like a turtle troll with a weird thing on top of its head that lives under bridges and that you know the, those creatures pop up in comic books here and there uh, but it's not, not it's not quite as clear-cut as the say saga tradition of uh, Iceland or something like and, that. And maybe there was some sort of weird sexual uh, Icelandic literature that hasn't made it into the common iteration. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, <laughs> humans in general are just chimps in fancy clothing, so sex usually comes up one way or another. <laughs> right. Uh, well, we have a few minutes left, so so uh, give me a, a taster of the psychedelics. I mean. Yeah. We're at your house. You don't literally have to produce psychedelics, but yeah, tell me no. about your your interest in psychedelics. Well, I, th I think that uh, I am interested in almost anything that is a is a common. I suppose this is by definition a common pattern across multiple civilizations over millennia. Uh, things like fasting the practice of fasting, whether it's for ascetic reasons or as an act of renunciation or for health benefits, that becomes an area of interest to me. Psychedelics happen to also be very consistent, whether it's, you know, the fly, I think it's agaric or agaric mushroom that most people would think of as a cartoon mushroom, uh, white, the red cap with little white dots on it, um, has some odd connections to Santa Claus that people can look up. but Show notes. Uh, yeah, show notes. <clears throat> or uh, you, you, can, you can look into the, say, Siberian shamanic traditions, or you can look at S South America, Central America, pe peyote, certainly things like ayahuasca, mushrooms, and uh, I think it was Oaxaca is where it first became, uh, in, was introduced to the West via a feature magazine article, of all things. And... Uh, mescaline, which became, I think, uh, very, it was injected into popular culture th through Carlos Castaneda in some ways. Uh, these are tools used to generate mystical experiences that are, are used across cultures for many different things. Uh, not always benevolent, by the way. Uh, some people neo-hippies believe that if we all just had like magic mushrooms in the water man be world peace you got to get donald trump eating mushrooms man well i mean like the mines and the aztecs used to cut people's heads off and play soccer with decapitated <laughs> heads they did a lot of psychedelics <laughs> you know, they did like vivisections of live human beings on altars as sacrifices so maybe that's not the panacea that we would like it to like it to be all of that having been said I am very active because of personal experiences. And, and as a caveat, here's, a, here's another podcasting lesson. I am not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. Rolf is not a medical practitioner, last I checked. So you should not, for both legal risk as much as anything else, uh, because all of these psychedelics, almost without exception, are Schedule One drugs in the same class as heroin and cocaine with similar penalties. Uh, use any of these compounds without proper medical and legal supervision, blah, blah, blah. So there you go. Uh, there you go. That's covered our asses. But <clears throat> because of personal experiences where I have received what appear to be the benefits of, say, 10 years of therapy in two or three days. Uh, By using? Psychedelics. Okay. In very highly supervised circumstances uh, and resolved 
issues that were long standing to the point of decades and have not had some of them return since. And this is you know, five, going on, say, five plus years. Uh, I, I've become fascinated by both the, mechanism of, the mechanisms of action of these compounds and the potential therapeutic applications of, say, psilocybin in particular. Are these issues of like self-awareness or, or self-knowledge? Or, is or it... past trauma. Interesting. Uh, if you look at, for instance, the use of MDMA, which I tend not to think of as a psychedelic in the sense that you experience the dissolution of self or ego, which is hard to even conceptually imagine if you haven't experienced it. It's kind of like explaining some, to someone what an orgasm is like. It's like, well, it's kind of like a, a sneeze in your genitals. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have a friend who's, whose grandmother described it, and this is to a woman, as, um, what is it? Oh, it's the, um, oh gosh, what is it? <laughs> it's the, it's, it's the ah oh, feeling of a bowel movement with the intensity of a sneeze. Hey, that's... <laughs> <laughs> and she learned this at like age eight, and it was, wow. just a lot, it was a lot to ponder before. That's a lot, yeah. So exactly, like you hear that, <laughs> right? And so it's, it's like, hard to what? It's hard to describe. So, yeah. to, so to imagine the disillusion of the self and the ego, where you no longer have the conception of I, is very difficult to imagine, unless you've experienced it. And then it's extremely easy, sort of with a nod and a wink, to have a conversation about that with someone who's experienced the same thing. Uh, but. Uh, with MDMA, say, in the treatment of PTSD, with uh, returning war veterans, the use of psilocybin or LSD, uh, but uh, psilocybin is, is my particular interest in, say, <clears throat> reducing or eliminating end-of-life anxiety in terminal cancer patients, mm -hmm. uh, which I was going to recommend to my friend Terry before he passed, in fact. Uh, these are compounds that have been unfairly vilified for political reasons and not scientific reasons. Uh, therefore, I, uh, I took, when I stopped investing in startups, for the most part, about two years ago, I took the energy and capital that would have been applied there and redirected it to scientific studies uh, at, say, Johns Hopkins and other highly credible universities with senior scientists doing uh, defensible work that can be published uh, to hopefully get some of these compounds rescheduled so that they can uh, both, both decrease the cost of qualified uh, acquisition of these compounds because as a schedule one uh, drug, which is an odd word to apply to say psilocybin in some respects, uh, it's cost prohibitive to get enough of the substance to do studies with larger sample sizes. So there are cost constraints, there are legal constraints, and I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that world and scientifically validating the medical applications of these compounds so that they can be more uh, actively studied and utilized uh, because I, I think that many, many people can benefit from them and also resolve issues that in some cases cannot be resolved through the prefrontal cortex focused rational, say, talk therapy approach to reasoning your way out of 
some type of pain or trauma that you've experienced. And uh, it's a hell of a thing. I mean, I, I have to say, I've seen many lives transformed, but you can also, if you misuse it or you have a history of say schizophrenia in your family, you can cause psychotic breaks or you can cause someone or yourself to become untethered from reality to an extent that is, is very dangerous. Uh, and you can make terrible, terrible, rash decisions, quitting your job, leaving a spouse, going on a walkabout, leaving your family. These things do happen when uh, people are not supervised properly. So there are, there are risks. I do think they have, in general, very low toxicity, very low uh, addiction potential, but to, to the extent that you can repair yourself, you can also cause delusion and uh, have brushes with madness that can terrify you for life. I mean, it's, these are powerful tools. This feels like even more reason uh, to commit to research, you know, and yeah, to, and to broaden sample sizes. It, it's interesting, I was talking to, again, comedian Ari Shafir, which will be a future episode um, <laughs> about magic mushrooms, and he said the same thing, you know, that yeah. he, he said up front, do you have a family history of, of schizophrenia? And then I said no, and he, he sort of stated the case, which, and his was specific to magic mushrooms, but it's, it's interesting how a lot of the benefits he describes were similar. Yeah. And, and it makes me wonder, you know, Eisenhower years ago sold America on the U.S. interstate system with a military pretext, you know, the idea yeah. that we need to be able to transport armies across the country if the Soviets invade. I just wonder if that might be the pretext for enabling more psychedelic research. Oh, 100%. You know, uh, by I, saying that we have these veterans and we need to solve their problems. Oh, I, it absolutely is because <laughs> it's a it's a bipartisan. It makes it uh, I should say neutral in a very bipartisan world because <laughs> no matter how liberal liberal oh well, let me try that again Porky Pig no matter how liberal we've been talking about Japan I'm not kidding when I talk about Japan a lot and it's on my brain I mess up my R's and my L's it's it sounds so weird but I do by the way your your Japanese is very subway announcement Japanese it's yeah. very official but, but, but <laughs> thanks that's just an aside <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Next stop, Akihabara. Akihabara desu. Uh, the, what the hell was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So I was, I was mangling. But liberal. bipartisan liberal. Yeah, yeah. So no matter how liberal you are, or let me rephrase that. It's too loaded. Left-leaning or right-leaning. It's very hard to say, yeah, you know, fuck those vets who came back with their legs blown off. Yeah. Who have kids to raise and are suffering because they can't go outside because they're so shell-shocked. Like, it's very difficult to, with a, with a political pretext, to be that callous. What's well, concrete versus abstract, again, yeah. too, that you have a very, very concrete and um, easy to empathize or sympathize with yeah. situation that gives you a nice pretext to say, well, look, let's look, you know, let's be scientific about this. Let's yep. broaden the sample size. Let's look at the, at the downsides and which types of people should not be using those. But then let's look at the at the benefits. Yeah, and it's happening right now. So it's the, the, the ball is moving. I worry about people getting uh, becoming casual in any way about using psychedelics recreationally uh, because it just takes one son or daughter of a politician who makes makes a mistake while on such a substance to create a zealot who wants to get on a soapbox and go on a crusade for per, out of personal pain or fear 
that really doesn't uh, isn't justified by this our current even our current scientific understanding of these compounds. So, yeah, that's uh, one of my missions at the moment or focal points for sure. Awesome. I have an, uh, an airplane to catch pretty soon. Yeah. So last question is, how do you wrap up your podcasts? <laughs> uh, I wrap up my podcasts with, uh, well, so-and-so. I think this is the perfect place to wrap up. I know you have a plane to catch. Is there any, uh, where can people, I, I generally end with, you know, where can people find you? to learn more about you, say hi to you on social media, et cetera. Is there anything you'd like them to check out in particular? Well, let's end on your new book because oh. uh, it seems perfectly appropriate. So uh, tell us about your new book and where to find it. Yeah, Tribe of Mentors is the new book. Uh, we all need mentors. And I'm constantly asked by people who feel perhaps their peer group isn't helping them to average up or they don't know how to access the people they would like to learn from. Uh, and for those people and for all of us, I wanted to put together a collection of very, very eclectic, diverse masters in different domains and ask them all the same 11 questions. Uh, 11 questions that I feel just pack the most power in each punch to cover the most bases, whether that's business, financial success, physical training, physical success, happiness, contentment, how to say no, what to do when they feel overwhelmed or distracted. It covers a lot of bases and it's a collection of profiles and you name it, they're in there. I mean, <laughs> ranging from actors like Ben Stiller and Terry Crews uh, who share their, their life lessons, favorite books, or I should say most gifted books, uh, all the way to the athletes like Maria Sharapova or uh, Kelly Slater, most decorated surfer of all time, Dan Gable, legendary wrestler, uh, to, I don't know, maybe a billion, or a billion, a billion <laughs> billionaires would be a lot of billionaires, <laughs> uh, maybe a dozen to 20 billionaires in the book who share what they've learned. Uh, it, it really covers everything, and uh, it's very, very actionable, very short profiles, so you can dip in and out, and you don't have to read A to Z. And that's it. I think it's I think it's a really fun book. I just got my first real copy and it's highly curated. The order is curated like a good album is what what one of my friends said who read uh, a, a digital copy and uh, he liked it more than than Tools of Titans and I loved Tools of Titans. I really enjoyed it. People seem to like it and he he liked Tribe of Mentors even more. So I encourage people to check it out. Uh, Tribeofmentors.com has sample chapters and list of all of the people in the book and uh, certainly you can find it you can find it anywhere so if you just search tribe of mentors it should pop up just about anywhere you might go we'll put that in the show notes too yes thank you thanks a lot tim it's great to see you again yeah you too man this has been the deviate with rolf potts podcast this episode was brought to you by the paris writing workshop an intensive month-long writing seminar in the artistic heart of europe tim ferris actually took part in this workshop two years ago you can find out more information at pariswritingworkshop.com. And if, as you're listening to this, you think, hey, isn't Rolf the director of the Paris Writing Workshop? The answer is yes. Since, as you know, Tim advises against getting outside sponsorship early on, I figured, hey, I'll just sponsor myself for this one. Again, that's pariswritingworkshop.com. Uh, more about that and everything uh, that was just mentioned in this episode in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. 
This episode was produced by Justin Glow with research support from Jan Futterman. Mike Marlett maintains the RolfPots.com website. And music in this episode comes from my own nephew, Cedar Van Tassel. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast.